Bem-vindos to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. As always, this is your host, Pedro Abreu. And this episode is a continuation of episode number 17, which we had Colonel Elliott here. If you didn't listen to that episode yet, I'd recommend that you stop this episode and go back to watch that one. Although it's not strictly necessary, I think you can pretty much follow this episode without the need of the last episode. But it's always nice to have a complete view of what's going on. I would say that in episode 17, Connell went down in a more philosophical route to give an in-depth explanation on why he believes that the notational design is a superior form of reasoning in the realm of computer science. In contrast, in this episode, we are a little less philosophical and more concrete on what is denotational design and, and how is it actually used in practice. We also continue a discussion raised by Dan Gika on the last episode on the need for operational semantics and the role of elegance in reasoning and design. Along the way, we also address the questions sent by the listeners in these last episodes. That being said, let's get into it! All right, welcome everyone to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. It's my great, great pleasure to be here again with Connell Allian. Welcome to the show again, Connell. Thank you. Really glad to be back. I appreciate uh, the chance to uh, uh, continue with one of the, some of the things I've been talking about and uh, respond to some comments and questions. Yeah, we actually got quite some questions. By far, it was the episode that got the most amount of interaction with the listeners so you're, you're quite popular man hmm. nice to hear before before we begin and go into the questions so I'm, I'm planning i think we are both planning right to go and do things a little more concrete about the notational design this time and talk things a little more concretely last episode was quite philosophical which was great mm-hmm. so before we start actually there was one question that i had in mind last time and i didn't ask and I feel like it was an important question. Uh-huh. What do you do at what were you doing at Target? Do do they have like formal methods over there? Ah, uh, yeah, that surprised me too. Uh, the, the they had a department. It was a, a roughly data sciences, and it was founded by three mathematicians. So it was it was huh. uh, the, the department was started, and it so anyway, it was a, a very conducive environment for doing kind of mathematically oriented work at the time. Uh, I think it was it was a bit of an experiment with Target, and uh, and oh, things okay. have shifted since then. So, at, at one point, it was no longer such a great place for me to be. Oh, all right, all right. Where, where do they were interested in, in in solving some numerical kind of stuff over there? That what can you can you can you say anything about the work they are interested in there? You know, I don't know what they're interested in anymore. It really has shifted, but uh, I mean. They have a lot of stores and they have a lot of uh, a huge amount of data uh, from sales and even from cameras inside the stores. Um, so they want to make you know good use of all that information. And so they were already working in Haskell before I joined. They weren't doing theorem proving kinds of stuff. They were doing uh, functional programming. Yeah. Right. So functional programming gives you a clearer way to express problems that do have mathematical structure. Uh, imperative programming is is... Um, what trying to describe something I'm interested in, but I'm always sort of having to describe low-level details yeah. about how to accommodate the low-level model, the von Neumann programming model, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas if you have a problem that is kind of lends itself to being math, uh, mathematicized, 
uh, then to, then it's a huge boon to have a language that's very friendly to, to, to that high level and doesn't require you to, to, um, what, uh, deal with a lot of distractions of, you know, like pointers and memory allocation. So they, they did not have any functional programming yet? No, they did. Yeah. They, okay. they, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, cool. I, I joined early on. They hired mm -hmm. you know, some other people as well to do that kind of thing. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, with that, with the that story. out of the way, um, where, where do you want to begin? We have quite a, quite a few topics to discuss. Yeah. Well, um, I sort of thinking roughly we could, uh, uh, read and discuss some of the questions that people posted first. All right. Um, yeah. maybe spend, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Dan Gika um, joined you recently. I very much enjoyed uh, your interview with Dan. I uh, enjoyed both of you and uh, really appreciate it. So hi to Dan and thank you very much for, uh, for, for being on uh, the podcast and uh, sharing in this conversation. I think it's a really, it's a really important conversation. Uh, and I think something that Dan and I share in common is that uh, we really want to get to the truth of things. Um, I, I, I liked that Dan... Uh, uh, what was not looking for a debate. I, I don't like the debate mode either. Yeah. So I, I think we're both really kind of interested in getting the clarity and I appreciate his uh, participating in it. So, the, you know, maybe 45 minutes on that or something. Uh, and then the rest of the time, um, which hopefully is a good hour and a half, at least could be talking about examples of denotational design. So our last conversation uh, did address philosophical points, and I think they were they're like important points that are underlying some of these choices. Um, more important than how how you know we get there, uh, but unless people have a sense of how they can get to uh, a place where we have clear understanding and um, uh, knowledge rather than guesses about what we're engineering, um, unless we can give them a pathway to get there, um, I, I worry that uh, the effect of these conversations only can be to kind of what spoil their day jobs for them. In other words, they kind of <laughs> awaken the desire for something better without uh, without helping them get there. So I'm hoping that today's conversation will give people more of a concrete sense yeah. of uh, of what uh, what elegant and rigorous uh, engineering can look like, uh, and 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 maybe some uh, hope about uh, applying it in their own work. So before before we start, actually, before we start mm -hmm. going into some of the questions, I think you made. I think Dan made a, a, a great point that is, is is worth opening with, which is the sense of of, of elegance, right? That yeah. is, it, it's sometimes seen as something very abstract, right? And it's not very clear if if that's a good a good measure of any sense, right? Because since it's so abstract and it's not concrete, and how how can you be sure, right? Yeah, and and not just not concrete, but also subjective was was right. the word that Dan used, yeah. And, and absolutely, that, that's part of what I would like to address. I, I, um, I think the word is often used in that way, in a very subjective way, and that's not what I mean. Yeah, so I, I think I shared on the, on the first interview a, a definition I like very much of, of, of elegance, and I'm going to just read that. Might as well read it and make sure that I get it right here. Uh, it was from Murray Gelman. There we go. So I'm going to read this again, and I think it's just it's kind of worth slowing down and taking it in. It's, it's quite a concise uh, definition. So Murray Gell-Mann, now he's a theoretical physicist. Uh, that, that's the context in which he's speaking. He says, a theory appears beautiful or elegant when it is simple. In other words, when it can be expressed very concisely 
in terms of mathematics that we have already learned for some other reasons. Okay. So is, is that definition, so uh, it, uh, concise expressibility in terms of math we've already learned, <clears throat> not math we invented for this purpose, that's important. Because you can make anything simple, right? If you can, if you can do a, give a very complex definition and then say, now let's take that as given and then point to it, right? <laughs> so that, 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 that's, a, uh, that's not a helpful notion of, of elegance. Yeah. Um, and then as Dan you know, mentioned about this notion of subjectivity, uh, that, uh, what, um, that people might use elegance to mean familiarity. And I mean definitely not that and usually the opposite of that. In practice, so that that's a really important distinction. Not not only isn't it not what I mean, but quite often what I'm calling elegant is the opposite of familiar to programmers. Okay, so maybe familiar to mathematicians and to theoretical physicists. In the in this quote from Marie Goldman, she she's she is hinting on some sense of familiar familiarity when she says that expressing something in terms of mathematics that you already yeah yeah exactly yeah. So if you're a mathematician, especially a pure mathematician. Then, then I think that that's that's a quite useful uh, definition. Um, if you're a theoretical physicist, then in a sense you're also a mathematician, right? That's so. So that that's a useful definition. Okay. If you're a computer scientist or engineer, then unlike mathematicians, you've been made familiar with a lot of things that are not very fundamental, that are arbitrary and complex. Okay. So why, is, if, if you were brought up in engineering, if, if you if you like did software engineering as a degree or some other kind of engineering, so what makes this difference? Okay, and I, I think it, it's a difference in values between the fields. So in mathematics, it's a core value of the field to be able to uh, express things concisely. And when you make, when, when you like write up a textbook, in other words, when you sort of define an area of mathematics or when you capture an area of mathematics that, that has been, that has evolved. Okay. <clears throat> um, the, um, for it to pass the test that, that mathematicians apply, it must be quite reusable. Okay. So that, that's what, that's why we have abstract algebra. Abstract algebra is, is a very, uh, what is a very pragmatic tool, and it comes out of uh, of, of uh, pragmatics that that software people will relate to, um, which, which is that we end, uh, mathematicians found themselves doing similar sorts of work over and over. I want to prove something about natural numbers. I want to prove something about rational numbers. I find myself proving the same thing over and over. And the real numbers, oops, I do do it over. And then things that aren't quite like numbers, maybe maybe number like like complex numbers, or maybe really very number unlike. Okay. Um, and so I have, end up having to do this proof work, definition proof work over and over. Okay, well, that's something that as software people, we relate to as, as like reusability. That's, that's a reusability crisis. I find myself writing the same kind of code over and over. And maybe worse, I copy and paste it because I'm so tired of typing it in. And then my eyes have glazed over. And so I like don't even notice that I've, I've, typed, I've copied something inappropriate together with something appropriate. In other words, uh, I've, I've taken too much from, from the, the cousin domain into what I'm defining. Okay, so mathematicians have our values, our, I mean, like computer scientists and software engineers, but much more so those values specifically, I mean, specific values being reuse. Okay, 
So, so the, a field, uh, abstract algebra, and it's subfields like ring theory or group theory or something like that, or, or linear algebra, which is about uh, which is about vector spaces, about linear functions. Okay, those fields came into being through this value system of, uh, of we want we want to get kind of the most reusable, the most useful uh, kind of theory that abstracts out enough but not too much. Okay, so if you are brought up with those values, okay. Then Murray Gell-Mann's uh, definition uh, will lead you to not subjectively, but I'm suggesting objectively uh, elegant theories. Okay. Now, maybe I maybe I've gone a little too far to say it's they're objectively uh, elegant because maybe what I should say instead instead is is that they are the collective subjectivity of a group of people who are darn good at making that call. Okay. Now, if you compare it with computer scientists, well, computers. I'm not, and maybe I'll avoid computer science is, is, is like, is not a thing, right? I mean, computer science is, it, it, it's a funny kind of a, a feel, but if we say like software engineers then those software engineers, their culture, right. That forms them, like what, the, what they grew up in, what, what their professors espoused in college, what allowed them to succeed, especially if they go into academia themselves, publishing papers. Okay. Um, that, uh, their values are not really the same as mathematicians. If they go into uh, industry, I should say, they're especially not the same because they're rewarded for more short-term value. All right? And Dan kind of made this point too when, when he, he, he said uh, uh, operational semantics is the workhorse of the uh, programming language theory community, programming language theory, right? And I agree. I agree that that is the case. Um, I don't take that as being a statement of, of um, a strength of operational semantics. I take it to be a, strength, a, a statement of the weakness of the current community from which I hope they, they will recover. Okay. But, but um, capitalism p- moves people into doing short-term value work, right? So just crank it out, uh, uh, you know, add the next feature, uh, pass the tests, but don't think too deeply beyond that, right? So those values do not give rise to uh, what? If you have those values, then what you are familiar with is not going to be what Murray Gell-Mann was talking about. If your values are are the formal, so the precise simplicity, the simplicity is the important part. The reason I say precise is that without precise, simplicity is usually a lie. In other words, it's a, it, it, it's the, it means a, if somebody doesn't doesn't understand a system formally, precisely, then when they say it's simple, they just mean I don't understand the complexity of it. Ah, yeah, yeah. All right, okay. Because they're coming out of ignorance. If they had to make it precise, they would know the actual uh, measure of complexity. Okay. Yeah. This comes back to the example of Python and the runtime. We just exactly. don't know how yeah. extremely complex things are. Yeah, you don't know how complex it is. All you know is that you're used to it and you can survive more or less, as well as you're expected to in your current job, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so to rewind a bit, um, uh, yeah. So Murugaman isn't saying if, a so, so, so what he, what he did say is, uh, we consider a theory elegant, uh, beautiful or elegant. If it can be expressed concisely in terms of mathematics, we've already uh, discovered for some other reason. He's not saying if it can be expressed in terms of the latest web framework that, you know, that what, that some committee got together 
And uh, after weeks of compromise, right, and everybody's uh, will to live was beaten down, they kind of came up with this document, right? Uh, th- he's, he's not talking about that kind of thing. He's not talking about, you know, what you learned even in school, uh, because unfortunately what people are learning in school in our field is less and less fundamental. You know, like, like uh, MIT, of course, used to teach computer science based on scheme, not my favorite choice, but it's way, way closer to my favorite choice than what they're doing now, which is Python. My understanding of why did I made that switch is because companies want Python programmers. So it's really capitalism that, that it kind of, uh, well, it's capitalism that applied the pressure and it's MIT that caved to the pressure rather than what, what I think a university does can do uniquely well, uh, which is to move uh, scientific progress forward and to help the students become aware of the difference between work of lasting uh, scientific value versus what you can get paid for. Yeah. So if you, so, so the, there's, I think there's really important qualifications in, in Murray Gilman's uh, definition. And one of them is just in terms of mathematics. Now I would make that, I would make that more specific. Okay. I would say, um, I think it's what he meant. I think it's in the spirit of what he meant. Okay. But I, I would say um, if it can be formalized, in a proof assistant, very concisely, in terms of mathematics that we've learned for other very good reasons, mathematically sound, you know, th- things that apply to a lot of different uses, okay, not hacked up for this uh, application domain, okay. So I, I'm I'm suggesting a more stringent reading. Um, if you're a theoretical physicist, I think Murray Gilman's definition is is fine because you already have those values. But if you're not if you if if you kind of have a if been shaped by engineering, then then anybody who's shaped by engineering is going to kind of have a rut that they're going to be tending to fall into, and that rut is not going to be what he's what Murray Gilman is talking about. It's going to be more like, well, Google did this, so it's a good idea, or <laughs> or, or this is one of the thousand papers that was published in the you know in some machine learning conference you know uh, this year, uh, and so it must be good. Um, yeah. So I, uh, so I think it's very easy to deceive ourselves and that's why formality matters. That's, that's the reason formality matters it, because if, if, uh, what you're not going to get away with lying to cock or Agda or Idris or lean. Uh, if, if you get it to come to a false conclusion, it's because you've explicitly given it a false postulate. Okay. So, so you, you've had to own up to that. And then everything you've proved is like modulo these, these assumptions. And if those assumptions are false, fine, it's, it's false. Okay. But, but with a lower standard than that, including well-intentioned people, but probably people who are under some kind of pressure and that can be academic pressure, like, you know, publication and tenure. Or it could be commercial pressure. We've got to get you know the customers are demanding, or 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 on the other side, like my own performance review is coming up, and and I know my boss is expecting you know this bo- that, that he can check off this bo- this box to give to his boss, and so on. Those pressures are going to be pushing us away from the values that Murray Gilman is talking about. Yeah. So I would say I would say elegance is not mainly a subjective kind of a thing, or if it is, it's the subjectivity of a group of people I, in, you know, in whom I place trust to make that call, mathematicians and theoretical physicists. Yeah. I don't trust 
uh, software engineers to make that call. How would you reconcile then? Because now you put, put, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's very hard to reconcile this idea of the pressures of the of the world. Because at the end of the day, we live in, in in a capitalism society, in a capitalist society, and you have to to deliver something, right? You have to. It comes back in a in a sense to that to that question that I made you last episode, where you had this really hard problem problem, and you're oh. under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're under pressure to 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 do the the easy solution, and you're like, no, I'm not doing the easy solution. I'm I'm going all the way. And then I ask you, what if you didn't find? <laughs> you would you would have been kicked out, and you're like, yeah, yeah. most yeah. likely. It's, right? an, it's an uncomfortable position, and it's a position I've been in many times. Sure, I but mean, there's, there's, some... there's there's often a gap between when I know that a suggestion is going to lead down a nightmare alley, and when I have a better suggestion. There's often a gap between the two. There's, there's just always a gap between those two. Now, a lot of people are not willing to speak when they're in that gap. They feel uncomfortable with something that's being proposed, but they don't have a better solution. And a lot of people don't want to hear it. A lot of people don't want to hear from somebody else. They're like, eh, this doesn't, you know, we, we should like, we should take a few days off and really think about this before jumping in with both feet. So it, it, it I, I think, it, you know, it's a part of, it's a part of adult life for anybody who cares about improving the state, uh, you know, the, the state of the art. So what do you do? This is a very personal question, and I'm happy to address it. I just, I just want to say I'm not, I, I'm not going to give everybody a, a kind of dictate about what's the morally right thing to do um, because the consequences are on the individual. Okay. So, so first of all, I want to say everybody has a choice. Okay. So it, it's not, so when people say, you know, I don't have a choice, I'm being forced to do this, it's not, it's not true. Okay. Um, there are consequences to making choices. Okay. So I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to be informed by what my values are and what, what I think the consequences of my choice are. Okay. <clears throat> it's still a choice that that's personal responsibility. That that's part of being an adult and part of being honest about things. Okay. So for me personally, I have, um, I, I think I could have got a lot more promotions and raises, you know, in various forms of external affirmation by um, not rocking the boat and making incremental uh, improvements to you know, what was going on in my jobs and by, by suggesting non-radical improvements, uh, by suggesting modest improvements that are within people's mental paradigms. Um, I have chosen not to do that quite consistently and there's been a you know, personal cost in, in doing so. Um, but those are my values. Uh, I, you know, we're on we have a very brief window right to 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 uh, to do anything that will have an impact on the world so there there's you know there's you know you got maybe 80 years plus or minus 10 something like that it's getting longer on the other hand well no it was getting longer until a few years ago and now it's not i'm sorry about that um so we ha we have that window and then a lot of that window is occupied by other stuff. You know, I'm like a little kid and I'm learning to write, you know, learning my ABCs. And then maybe I am a young married and start having children and, and, you know, maybe I have a mortgage and that kind of stuff. There, there are these different parts of life where we're, you know, where, where we have different, uh, different pressures on us, but we always have this choice. So to me, it's become very clear. I, I think I always had a direction, but I think I got more clear about it. In the last couple of years, uh, and, and what what the it is that's gotten more clear is is that um, um, 
I want to do more than brownie in motion. I want to participate in something more than brownie in motion. Okay. So what I mean is, is, is like the whole universe is, is wiggles, right? That's what the universe is. The universe is wiggles. You look at the, like every particle is wiggling. Every some atomic particle is wiggling, right? We have our breathing in and out. We have the day rhythm. We have the, you know, the, the, uh, what sun going around the galactic center. We have all of these cycles, right? Uh, that's the universe is made out of, out of wiggles. We as a species have a kind of special opportunity. I don't think we're the only intelligent species even on this planet, but we're a, a particularly intelligent species. And with that, we can make certain choices and we can, um, we can create things of lasting value. Okay. And we look back on the last particularly few hundred years. Okay. So what I mean is like, uh, since the age of enlightenment and the age of science, uh, I don't want to discount what happened before. There was a very dark period before where the church r- ran things. And then there was a, a, an enlightened period before with the Greeks, the golden age of Greece. But if we focus on the last few hundred years, we have made phenomenal progress in understanding uh, large questions. You know, what, where are we in the universe? What is the universe? Uh, our picture today is radically different from what it was before. We've learned very, very important things. We learned important things about life too. We've learned that all, almost all species that have ever lived are now extinct. And also that that's a good thing, not a bad thing for progress, uh, uh, for, for the genetic progress of what's happening, you know, with life on this planet. Okay. So, so for the last few hundred years, we have, before that, before the last few hundred years, we were doing kind of brownie in motion. <clears throat> there was a lot of intensity and there was a lot of energy going into things like, like theology. Okay. A lot of complicated theories. And none of those theories really could go anywhere, could produce anything of lasting value, okay? The scientific method gave us a way to steer toward the truth, okay? By emphasizing experimentation, which is you have to measure a theory against reality, right? And then we learned how to make, how to like, where to look for theories, how to test those theories. We test those theories, it tells us where to look, where else to look for theories, and we look there, they tell us what else to test. So we, we've been doing this for a while and making phenomenal progress. And it's, it's incredible. We're doing something of, of great value. Uh, we are almost a multiplanetary species. That's incredibly important. We may or may not be the only, our, our planet may or may not be the only uh, home for intelligent life. I used to think that was a simple question, obviously is. I no longer think that for a variety of reasons. I, I don't know which way. I really hope we're not it, but we might be. So anyway, I think... We're in the position to do things that really matter in the long term, okay? Capitalism is not pushing us in that direction. Capitalism is pushing us towards short-term value. That, that's what runs it, okay? So what do you do as an individual, I think, is your question. What do I do? How then do I live? All right? And I think that that's where you got to make a choice. How much do you care about doing work of lasting value? Okay? Work of lasting value is based on, I mean, there are certain choices that one makes strategically to do that. And, and skepticism about well-established institutions, you know, holy books, uh, gang of four design patterns, uh, JavaScript frameworks. Um, Creator of languages. Yeah, TensorFlow stuff, you know, like the, these kind of things. Like that's not, that's not of lasting value. It, it, they're, they're kind of complex piles of things that sort of do a job. So if you really care about being part of 
of the, of, I was going to say the human experiment, but I'm going to say the experiment of intelligence, what, what intelligence can accomplish. Okay. If you really care about that and you want your life to make a difference, if you want to be part of creating something of lasting value rather than of short-term uh, monetary gain, then I think you got to make a sacrifice. How much of a sacrifice is up, is up to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have, I have chosen to do work that is important to me rather than trying to maximize my bonuses and raises and that kind of thing. And I'm glad. And it's not always, it, it hasn't always been pleasant. <laughs> I think your stoicism is very inspiring, you know, oh. sticking to what you believe. So thank you. Thank you for sharing mm -hmm. that with us. Um, moving a little forward a little bit, yeah. um, bringing the next topic of what Dan has raised about operational semantics as a way to ensure computability. You know, I, I think I'm not quite done with the elegance thing, especially if okay. we're going to, you know, to, uh, with, 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 um, what to address Dan's comments. I think the thing that impressed me the most when I listened to Dan's, uh, with your conversation with Dan is that he and I really agree. I mean, I, I think Dan and I really agree much more than he realizes. I think Dan really believes in elegance. He just calls it different things. Dan talked about, you know, why elegance should not be a yardstick of success for science. Okay. Um, and I really, and I agree with him and, and it's not my yardstick. It, it, it's, uh, it has value. And I think Dan uh, expressed that value. So one of the things he Dan said is instead of subjective criteria, we, uh, science, you know, it, it is, uh, progresses by examining objective criteria, you know, and, and that's what we should do too. An objective criteria, like something's faster or cheaper, or it's easily formalizable. Okay. So faster, cheaper, or easy, easily formalizable. I think what he, what he calls easily formalizable is what I call elegance. I think it's really the same thing and that we value it for the very same pragmatic reasons. So elegance is a means to an end. It, it's, it's not an end to itself. Okay. It is a little bit for some people, including me. I mean, I, I have like a, a pleasure response to elegance. Uh, but, but I don't think it needs to be justified at all on those grounds. So if, if something is inelegant, it cannot be, uh, it cannot be formalized with ease. So formalization becomes very costly if for something that, that is this complex. If the proof is complex, then proving becomes very difficult. If the theorem is complex, it's actually a different problem. It, it's, not, it's not that it's difficult. Uh, it's not that it's costly to create. It's that it's of less value. Because, because a theorem is a question, right? And a proof is an answer. So is this true? Yes, here's the, here's the evidence, right? Uh, or, 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 you know, can something be done in polynomial time. Yes, here, here, here's me demonstrating it and, you know, proof that it's, it, it's correct and it's in polynomial time. All right. If so, so there's a question, there's an answer. The answer can be verified by a machine. That's what a proof assistant is. Okay. The question cannot be verified by a machine. All right. It doesn't have the property of being right or wrong. The answer does. The question doesn't. Questions have a property of being more useful and less useful. Okay. And then there, there is another kind of right or wrong thing about it, which is really important. And it's why it has to be simple, which, which is if I have a very complicated statement of a theorem, and then I go on to go and apply it, right? That's the point. I prove things so that I can use them. But if the very statement of the theorem is complex, 
okay, then my trying to apply it, especially in my head, is going to be difficult, right? And the machine that's checking that proof is me. And I'm bad at that. And so are you. We all are. You and I are among the best at it. And we are bad at it. Okay? <laughs> so that that's so questions are not formalized. And therefore, they must be simple because we deal with them informally. Anything that's complicated is probably false. Okay? Anything that's complicated is both probably false and is capable of fooling most of us. Therefore, anything that's complicated has to be formally checked in order to be trusted. If questions by their nature cannot be formally checked, there's no question to check the question with, right? Then we cannot use formality. Therefore, we have to use simplicity instead. So it's a purely pragmatic, if I want trustworthy results. And the question here is, I I think a a fundamental question is, can we build uh, engineering artifacts, sophisticated engineering artifacts that are dependable? That's a, I think that's a question. And that's what proof lets, lets us get to, okay? If we find a way to make that proof be, uh, the proof have manageable uh, effort and the, and the theorem be, uh, be manageably simple, okay? So I don't care how hard it is to check the proof, the machine is doing that. I care how hard it is to build a proof because that's the cost of it. And I care how simple the theorem is because that's the value of it. So, so Dan has, is the same, I mean, he likes the same thing. It's like, I want it to be easily formalized. And that's what he liked, I think, about his, uh, the uh, string diagrams and the, the, the graph, uh, the graph incarnation of his string diagrams. They were easy to formalize. And that was the thing that he valued about it. And I'm cheering him on. Good for you, brother. I think, I think one of the, one of the issues here is that within his definition of elegance, you, you, you mentioned cost, right? And I believe there is a duality here in the sense of simplicity is costly. Ah, simplicity is costly to find. Exactly. It takes, yes. it takes a lot of effort, mental absolutely. journey yeah. of the brain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Simplicity is difficult to, to so attain. These so two, these two forces within elegance uh-huh. of simplicity and cost are yes. actually contending with each other all, at all times. Ah, okay, right. Let's get into that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So I was talking about a different cost. I was talking about the cost of use. Mm. So if something is complex, then then it's usage cost. Every user gets taxed by that complexity. Okay. If something is difficult to create, then its creator pays that cost and everybody else benefits from it. Yeah. So, so think about Einstein. <clears throat> Right, Einstein spent ten years between the special and general theories of relativity. Right, he spent ten years to bridge that gap, and that's what he was working on. Right, and and he came up with a great answer that we have all benefited from ever since, and we benefited from his his earlier theory, special theory of relativity. We benefited from his proof of the existence of atoms. Right, and his explanation of the photoelectric effect. We we've all benefited from these things. Einstein paid the cost. We we get the benefit. Okay, and his his theories are simple. They're elegant, in the sense of Murray Gell-Mann. Now Einstein had to be what uh, educated, exposed, and sensitive enough to be aware of some mathematics, like the mathematics of of uh, uh, Bernard Riemann, uh, of, of you know higher dimensional uh, geometry and topology. But he was, you know, thank goodness, and he had a teacher. Um, Minkowski, who uh, who exposed him to that and who helped him that kind of work. 
So it, it's not like it's for it's for free. Um, but I, I think that, that this is an important distinction. If it, it, we we don't need a world full of brilliant people creating simple things, we need a few people doing that, right? And and for them to be valued and supported, and then we need some education to appreciate. Um, and Stockster pointed out, uh, simplicity is requires education to appreciate. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and a lot of people don't have that, so that's kind of a bummer. Uh, because they they don't even recognize when you hand it to them, and they're not jumping up and down to thank the inventor either. They're more like maybe annoyed. I'm asking you to you know think of something that isn't part of your JavaScript framework. But on the other hand, I think then 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 made a point last when he was here, and that was very how can I how can I put it? I felt a lot at ease because he mentions that it only takes one person to appreciate your work. If one yes. person, and I, yes. I found I found so much good. I'm glad you did. Um, you know, he's he's so right. He's so right. It only takes yeah. you know one person, especially in academia. If this one person will will trust, will see the value of what you're doing, you're done. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah, it's Personally. not all everybody needs. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. It it but it, it's a hell of a big difference between zero and one. Yeah, yeah. Some people want constant affirmation. Other people don't care at all, and other people like just give me one for goodness sake, just right, one. Exactly, makes me think of, of lean. It only took, if 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 I'm not mistaken, it only took a, a one big mathematician to really appreciate lean, and now lean is growing so so exponentially because of his of his voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it's a big world, and now we have like what you and I are doing now, you know, talking to each other and yeah. long distance. Yeah. And so, so um, we we can get we can get connection and some affirmation uh, for work without it being popular in, in terms of like ratios. You know, if only one percent or or a hundredth of a percent of people, you know, appreciate this, that's plenty now. You didn't used to be, yeah. So I, I'd like to go back to another since we're you know, talking about Dan's yeah, uh, Dan's remarks and and, and elegance. Um. So, yeah. So I, I, I really think Dan and I are very close in, in what we value. When I use the word elegance, he, he uses the word um, uh, easily formalizable, and I think that that's the heart of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with uh, with describing it either way. Um, I actually, I actually like his way of saying easily formalizable because he's right. It has to be objective, uh, otherwise it, it's it's just too slippery, and and that. Um, what easily formalizable? So, so formalizable, I, I think, is is really kind of the best. What it's the best yardstick we have because that's that's the one in which we're not deceived. I think everything else that's looser than that is uh, is just inviting uh, self deception. Um, so there was another thing that surprised me, and I'm also grateful to Dan about. Um, I I think I was surprised that some of his objections around elegance is was of the form I. Uh, it's not enough. Elegance is not a good enough definition of success. Uh, and, and so like he pointed out, uh, the, the Greeks thought that the uh, orbits were circular and yeah, circles more elegant than an ellipse and they were wrong. Uh, and it took, you know, Kepler to notice that, uh, but you know, it took telescopes, right. Our ability to observe things. Um, and then he, but, and, and I completely agree with that. That it, it's, a uh, Elegance is not a yardstick for success. Truth 
right? Truth is, 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 the, is the yardstick. And, and in science, truth means uh, it agrees with reality. Right. Right? Yeah. Right. So the problem with circles is they didn't agree with reality. They're disqualified, mm-hmm. not just for Dan, but for me too. All right? So if, if, if a theory doesn't agree with, with the facts, then the, then the theory, we throw it out. Now, sometimes um, the, 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 there, there's some subtlety to it, which is, that, which is that we can make mistakes in our measurements. And there have been theories, and there have been people who believed in those theories, uh, for which uh, the theory disagreed with measurements that have been taken. And, the, and there was something about those theories that were so compelling that we went back and remeasured and the measurements were wrong. Okay. So, so Frank, Frank Wilczek talks about uh, some examples of these. Uh, Murray Gelman does too. Uh, I, I think maybe I linked to, to a talk that he gave. Yeah, where, where here, here we had this beautiful theory. There were like seven experiments published that showed we were wrong and they were, they were wrong. We were right. Our one theory was right. All those seven experiments were wrong. Now, I'm not saying this is like school kids facing off in the playground saying, I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, those experiments were redone and found to be mistaken the first time. So occasionally there are theories that are so compelling. But you know what? We don't even have to talk about that. I'm, I'm perfectly happy saying if it, if it doesn't agree with reality, it's disqualified. Um, now, of theories that, that agree with reality, what shall we pick? And Dan and I have the same answer. We pick the simpler ones, right? And I think how Dan put it was, if all else is equal, yeah, sure, let's do the simpler things. That's all I'm saying. But of course, all else is equal. I think what we both mean, not literally everything else is equal because it won't be. I think what we really literally mean is it does the job. It agrees with reality. Okay. Now, for, for computation, there's something also that we put in, and, and he mentioned this, which, which is efficiency. So, so Dan said, uh, elegance isn't worth a 50 times hit in, in efficiency. All right, so if, if your elegant thing is 50 times slower than this inelegant thing, then you should go with the inelegant thing. I completely agree with him on that. So I, I really think, I, this is part of what I was struck in listening to him, was like, wow, we really agree more than I thought we did and more than he thinks we do. Um, so, and for me, and somebody asked me this in a sort of like a, a job conversation. It was a company who wanted to hire me to help them design hardware. <laughs> um, and, and the CEO asked me this question and was like, um, okay, so you want to do this proofs, but how much does it cost you in performance? Because performance really matters. Um, and I was taken back, I was taken aback, you know, a bit by the question. It's not the first time I heard the question, but maybe I was in a more clear space when I heard it this time. Um, because there's something really broken about that question. Uh, how, much, how much performance does proof uh, lose? Okay. Uh, um, so for one thing, proof cannot lose performance because it has nothing to do with, with performance. So there are different kinds of things. Proof is about whether it's correct or not. Performance is about, about the, the detail, the operational details, right? How well... How, how efficiently you can map it to physics, right? So physics is out there doing what it does. We've, we, we've kind of tamed it in the form of, of first analog and then digital electronics, right? And, but it's still physics, of course, which means, of course, it's still analog. Um, but we, you know, we, we have this kind of simulation of, of, of digital computation that we use, okay? Then, then we want to use it efficiently, okay? So, um, uh, but, but to say that, that, that like proof is at odds, I think what it really means, there's two questions. Okay, is it proof that's the problem or is it truth that's the problem? 
Okay. In other words, do you want to eliminate proof because you don't want to have to do the work of having a proof? Or do you want to eliminate proof because you don't want the inconvenience of dealing with the fact that your implementation is wrong? Okay. Because the proof has these two aspects. There's a fundamental aspect, and, and that's really what proof is, was, is about, what's motivated, which, which is it allows us to safely arrive at the truth. Let me say that differently. It prevents us from deluding ourselves that we have arrived at the truth and we have not. And that's what proof does. Proof, keep, proof either, it tells you one of two things. You haven't gotten there yet, right? You haven't finished your proof. Or you've gotten, you've actually gotten there, really. Okay. Informal arguments make you think you get, you've, you've gotten to the answer when you haven't. You've gotten to truth when you have not. That's why proof is so important. Okay. So if I care about truth, right, then proof can only be an asset. Now it costs some, but that's not the cost of proof. That's the cost of knowing that I'm right about this thing that I'm betting perhaps tens of millions of dollars on, <laughs> as in the case of hardware or even software, right. really. Yeah billions and billions of dollars, you know, like Intel paid for their buggy oh, uh, yeah. floating point kind of yeah. bug, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, there's a cost to doing that and there's a huge benefit and you do this kind of risk ratio and some things we just don't bother. Some things we, we do. Okay. Now, so that, so that's what I'm, I'm saying. It, it cannot possibly be a detraction from performance. Okay. Unless what you're really trying to do is get rid of the property of being correct. <laughs> okay, when you eliminate truth, right? If you really want to get rid of the requirement to being correct, then by all means, yes, you can do much better performance-wise. No matter what your implementation is, you can do much better. And and the, uh, until you get to the limit, which is that it's infinitely fast and takes no resources. <clears throat> and the only problem with that implementation is that it's wrong. But hey, you said you wanted to give up truth, right? It was too costly for you. Okay. So I think you got to decide, do you want it to be right or not? If you don't want it to be right, then you can get, you can get absolute ideal efficiency very, very easily. You just erase everything and you're done. Okay. It runs infinitely fast. Okay. And it has no known bugs. Right. <laughs> All right. If you want to get it right, then proof cannot hurt you. And I'm, now I want to say something stronger, which is that it, 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 it can help you. And also it's essential for, for uh, uh, performance. So it's not an enemy of performance, it's an essential ally for performance. And here's why. <clears throat> this is something I've seen my whole career. So I, 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 what, I graduated my PhD in 1989. So I've been doing, you know, working since then and before then actually. All right, so what I've seen my whole career is that people optimize their software to a certain point. And that point is, I, that point is it's now so complex and my grip on its correctness is so shaky that I don't dare optimize it any further. Ah, right. Okay? Right. That's the phenomenon I've seen my entire career. And, and what I learned by watching this happen is that optimization is self-defeating. If done without proof. Okay? So we, so we engineers, I consider myself one, we engineers care about two things. We care about this, this thing actually does what I want, you know, or what my customers want. And it also does it cheaply. Okay, nowadays cheap is not just about speed. It's also, it's mostly about energy. And you cannot get speed without having low energy. If you have low energy, you get things more, you get more than you get with just speed. Okay, so we care about it being reliable, roughly it being right, but I don't even mean in the sense of proof. And we care about it being efficient with the resources. Okay, now without proof, 
those two things that we deeply care about are at odds with each other. Okay, this is a terrible situation. If there are two things you deeply care about, you don't want them at odds with each other because it means whenever you help one, you hurt the other. And that's exactly what we do now. That is the state of the art. Okay, so I can make my program more likely to be dependable by making it less efficient. Oops. I can make it more efficient by making it less dependable. Oops. That's what it means to take two of your core values and put them at odds with each other. And that's the state of computer science and engineering today. Okay. So I think we cannot get away from that terrible dilemma without proof. Proof is the solution. Okay. So when I said that proof is, is not only, not only is it not the enemy of efficiency, it's the necessary ally of efficiency. That's what I mean. Without proof, you can only get so far before you're no longer willing to, uh, to uh, you're no longer willing to um, increase the likelihood of catastrophic failure beyond what you've already done. Right? There becomes a point where it says, um, nobody's willing, you know, the, the, the performance, the efficiency, the low cost is no, is no longer worth uh, the, the increased uh, likelihood of catastrophic failure. Okay. It seems to me that it's, so, so how you get past that is you have a proof. Right. It seems to me that yeah. this proofs in this case is almost as if it's a specification of your understanding of how the program works, right? Like, because as, as you're improving and increasing the optimization, you are increasing complexity in a way like yes. it's, it's doing more and more things but at yes. the same time you're kind of like you're maybe you're you're not there, there are too many internal states of, exactly. of how your program is working and you're not yeah. properly documenting on how each one of these yes. states is is actually uh -huh. uh, talking with each other and what the proofs forces you to do is to properly document it in a proof state right yeah it yeah it forces you to properly document it and be right and yeah. probably you're not right even. Not only have you documented <laughs> it, you're probably actually wrong. And mm. so the effort to prove something does more than confirms that it's right. It actually makes it be right when it was wrong. It reveals the mistakes. Because that's one of the wonderful properties of proof. We think of proof as about this is how you uh, verify something that's right. But proof has another effect. It's, it's how you constructively anti-verify something that's wrong, right? And, and that's a necessary step on getting to the truth, all right? Like you, you probably heard this saying, it's a, it's a cliche, would you rather be right or happy? Because it's not usually talked about in our fields, you just talk about like in marriage counseling or something like that. Would you rather be right or happy, okay? I don't buy that, that uh, a dichotomy. I think stable happiness depends on becoming right. To me, a more constructive question is, would I like to appear to be right or would I like to become right, okay? And proof is the proof is the ally of becoming right, and it's the enemy of appearing to be already right. So you got to ask yourself a personal question: What's more important to me, the truth, or other people thinking I'm already there? And for some people, it's one, and some people, it's the other. And type systems, including the extreme of like proof is independent type systems, are all about telling you you're wrong when you're wrong. Some people appreciate that information, some people don't. Maybe I'm doing a leap of thought here now, but it seems to me that this is, in a sense, the core of what the notational design and what your your, your philosophy behind the notational design is happening. Is this the case? Is this where well, we're What going do you now? think is the it that's the core of denotation? The, 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 the it, it's exactly this idea of, of documenting your, <laughs> yes. your code with your proofs, right? In a sense yeah. of you can only understand your 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 code properly if you're if they are accompanied by their proofs 
Okay. So I want to, I want to say almost. Yeah. And I, I want to make a distinction. I, th I think it's pretty important because there are like two, two different groups of people at impacts and two different values at impacts. So one, one, one is the statement of the theorem and the other is the proof. Okay. So I don't understand the functionality of my software unless I understand the statement of the theorem. Okay. The statement of the theorem is the functionality of my software. Specification. Okay. Yep. Yes, exactly. The specification. Yeah. So the proof brings in the implementation details. Okay. Right. So, so I'm, I'm going to have some big wad of code and I'm going to have a theorem and I'm going to have a proof. So that the, the theorem says, yes, the code, the code uh, is faithful to some specification. And that specification should not be the code itself. Otherwise it's not useful. Okay. And then there's a third thing that says this claim is true. <clears throat> That's the proof. Okay. So if you want to understand the functionality, so for instance, a user or an implementer, want to understand, you know, what, what this functionality is, then they should only need the theorem, not the proof. Okay. If, but now you want to make sure the implementation is correct, <clears throat> right? So if I, I design some software, that's what I've done my whole career. I design some software and I give it to you and you're the user. <clears throat> I want to be able to tell you a story about the software that is not about its implementation. Okay. That, that, that is about how you can use it, how you can think about it. Okay. That's the story. And I want that story to be true in the sense of, uh, uh, in the following sense, my implementation, which is the thing I'm actually going to give you. So there's a story in the implementation, the story, of the specification, the implementation is, right, is, is different from that. The theorem is that the implementation is faithful to the story. That's the theorem. If that theorem holds, then you can use that story and ignore the implementation without hurting yourself. Okay. If that, if that theorem does, is not true, okay, then my story will hurt you eventually, okay? I've given you a little story. I'm saying that, you know, there's the birds and the bees or the stork or, or you know, the earth goes around the, the, I mean, the sun goes around the earth or something like that. There's some story. And eventually, like, if you believe that story, you're going to hurt yourself because it's in conflict with reality, Okay. So the purpose of the theorem and the proof, purpose of the theorem is to get the statement of the theorem is to give you a simpler story. The purpose of the proof is to make sure you don't hurt yourself, to make sure that, that, that you can, you can just focus on the simple story and not on the implementation. All right. And the two will be an exactly analogous. Okay. In other words, in other words the, 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 the implementation is faithful. That that's what the theorem says. Okay. If you, if you, for what, um, what, if I have proved that theorem, and, and you know that, that that theorem is proved and you're the user, you don't have to look at the proof. Okay? So the proof is not, the complex proof does not cost you, the user, more. It costs the prover more, right, if it's complicated, okay? What does cost you, the user, more is the complexity of the theorem. That's why I keep making that distinction. That's hugely important. Because if, if, you, write a bunch, if you write some software and you share it, it's because you think there's going to be probably more users than authors, Right? Maybe it had two or three authors and maybe it's got 10 million users. Or maybe it only has 3,000, who cares, or 15. All right? But there's more of them, presumably. And therefore, I want to make their job easier and I'm willing to make my job harder in order to make their job easier. Economy of scale. Right? That, that is my job. So what makes your job easier is for the theorem to be simple. <clears throat> That's why elegance. That's what I mean by elegance. That a precisely stated theorem, and I don't even mean the proof. I mean the theorem. If, if, the, if that theorem can be expressed very concisely, 
in terms of mathematics, we've already learned for some other purpose, right? And preferably, if I'm giving it to a user, preferably it's something I can refer to that they know about, or I just you know really keep it simple, right? Then I've given something, them something of more value than if I had given them something with a complex specification. Because every time they go to use it, they have to think of the story I've given them. And there's three possibilities. The story is very complex, in which case they're going to struggle with it. Okay, it's going to be painful every time they use it. Or the story is simple but false, in which case they're going to, they're going to be misled and hurt themselves with it. Or the story is simple and true. That's what I'm after. And that's what I mean by the word elegant. And that's why it matters. It's a very practical sort of a thing. Okay. Now, on the other hand, I want my proof to be elegant. Why? Because <laughs> the more complicated it is, the harder I'm going to have to work. The harder it is, or whoever builds it. Yeah. But that's a cost that I'm willing to pay. Okay. But I'm not willing to make it unnecessarily difficult. Okay. And in particular, I'm not willing to get a poor result and make it unnecessarily difficult. And I'm afraid that's what operational semantics leads people to do. Okay. And, and we can talk more about operational semantics that, that, that it neither gives a good implementation, a high quality result, nor a simple story. Okay. And we, 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 can, we can come back to that one. And it, 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 it's really, whether you agree with that or not, it's not important. I think what's really important is, is that there are these two values. Uh, I, I want to give something of high value and I want to make it uh, cost effective to create. I, I want it to have high value in two senses. Uh, I give them something that's efficient and their use of resources because they're running on their machine, right? And also they're running on this planet. We all share this planet and how much heat is dissipated by a computer affects everything that lives on this planet, right? And it affects you more than me because you're younger, right? And you know, <laughs> my grandkids, right? You know, I mean, this is a serious thing. This matters, yeah. So I want to give something that's easy for them to understand. And I don't, let me, let me put a point on that. Not easy for them to understand, easy for them to understand reliably. Okay. So a false story can be easy to understand, but it does you harm to understand it that way. So that's why I want simple and correct. Yeah. So correct is what proof gives you. Simple is what elegance gives you. And that, and that elegance is, is a value to the end user, uh, the elegance of the theorem. That's why it matters. And I, and I, 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 I know Dan has, I mean, he, I know Dan agrees with me on the, on the essentials of that. We may have different ideas about the strategies, but you know, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because there's like, let's do our experiments as long as we're asking the same questions. Yeah. And, 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 and sharing our, 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 our challenges and our successes honestly with each other, not trying mm -hmm. to win a debate. Yeah. 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 I like that. So, I think I think at this point I yes. I probably disappointed our listeners because I said that we wanted to do a more concrete episode and we're yeah, one hour in very philosophical okay. still right yeah so yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I was thinking maybe we want to get a little more concrete on 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 those examples of the notational design yep. because most yeah, of the it. questions that we have is somehow related to that yeah I think so too yeah we'll we'll maybe come back and touch on some of these philosophical points but not not like not rest there just touch there yeah because they are important but they're also hard to hard to know what to do with without that yeah, yeah, yeah 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 for yeah, sure okay so um yeah so i've been using denotational design consciously for the last i don't know 15 years or something like that uh where i could articulate it and i think now i can articulate it better than i could then uh but i think i was using it my whole career you know since the late 80s um, there's some, something that clicked for me and, and it, it shaped what I, uh, what, what I built. 
Uh, and I've worked in computer graphics, but I worked in other areas. And it, it, I think it, it's really the, the kind of uh, paradigm of how do you think about these things we're building uh, in, in a useful and powerful way. And again, my goal has always been high performance, always. So I'm not, I'm not somebody who cares about elegance more than performance. I care about oh, and, and proof more than performance. I care about them together. And I think they only work when they're together. They don't work apart from each other. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, uh, so let's talk about some examples of denotational design. Okay. Well, uh, maybe what denotational design is a little bit, but mostly in terms of examples. Okay. So what I mean by denotational design is, is this, um, that, that, that there, there, there's a precise analogy. Okay. Between this, is what I was just saying, there's a precise analogy between a simple, a precise story, and an implementation. Okay? Now that precise analogy looks like uh, sometimes it's called compositional semantics. Uh, in a more specific uh, form, the same essence, but in a more specific form, it's called uh, homomorphic design or homomorphism. And and, and it, it's but it's the idea. If you think about what is software for, right? It's to solve some kind of a problem. And hopefully that problem isn't one that we created by, by using computers, right? <laughs> right? Computers are supposed to be a net win, right? It's right. like, right, we shouldn't just use computers to like solve computer problems because a much easier solution is just get rid of all the computers, right? So we have computers because we're trying to solve computer problems that don't originate from the computers themselves, right? So they're going to be outside, all right? But we're going to use the computer, right? And outside we might have things like numbers and uh, trees and graphs and uh, language, Right? Uh, uh, probability distributions, that kind of thing. Um, computers aren't any of those things. They're not even numbers, right? Computers are, are like are patterns of bits. Even that's not true because, because bits are digital and computers are analog. That's, that is going to sound weird to some people, but computers are, to realize computers are analog, you just have to ask what are they made out of. They're made out of nature and nature is analog. Right? So computers, everything is, everything in nature is, is analog in this sense. There's another question about like the Planck uh, threshold, you know, like at 10 to the minus 43 seconds and 10 to the minus 30 something meters um, or something like that, right? That, that, where where there's, there, there's an open question of is the universe discrete or continuous? I think that's a really interesting question, but, um, but uh, what? Our computers cannot run anywhere near at that rate. Why? Because they're made out of nature. Nothing they're made out of nature can run at nature's own rate, right? Therefore, if you define, if you define, if you're saying I'm trying to model reality and reality has this Planck level discreteness, then I have to tell you that every implementation you could possibly build in this universe has to be wrong because none of them could run at the right rate because the, the correct rate, the way you've defined it is the Planck, Planck rate, which is unachievable in a universe that's built on the Planck length. You know, threshold itself. So I, I think this whole this whole thing about the discreteness of nature at that level is really interesting. But I think it, it, it's like a, it's a red herring in, in conversations about uh, software or hardware that we can come within many, many, many orders of magnitude. You know, mm -hmm. of, of building. So maybe just just to give some more some more context, there was a question talking exactly about this. Of he was he was asking, wait, no, but we know that nature is actually. Discrete, yes, right, but. that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot that came up. Yeah, yeah. So yes, nature is discrete. And if you if if you say then you know what you're doing is you're acting like nature. Okay. Well, nature is not only discrete; it has a particular frame rate, particular sampling rate. Oh, the frame so that's rate. That's your job. That, this is kind of that's kind of like the, what this blank 
constant is yes. about is, yeah, is you, how yeah you have to run actually... it i think it's it, yeah it's like 10 to the minus 43 something like that okay okay, okay okay gotcha so gotcha. so so you got to run your software on your hardware that gets that rate guess what not even any hardware built in this universe can get can run that rate because <laughs> it's made out of this universe exactly yeah exactly yeah 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 so if you want to say nature is discrete then i'm going to say okay it's not all discrete it's telling you what rate to run at and it's impossible even theoretically so good mm -hmm. luck with that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so now we can back off and say maybe from even from a modest Newtonian perspective. Okay. Well, there the universe is continuous. No, let me say that differently. I I'm I'm I bungled that one. Um, so Newton gave a continuous Newton and Leibniz gave a continuous model of the universe, continuous time and space. All right. Now maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong about that continuous thing. Okay. But if they're wrong. And, and, and we really, and that nature really is, does have this discreteness in time and space, then the continuous model is incredibly more faithful to that discrete truth than any discrete model we could possibly work with, than we could possibly implement. Okay. All right. Because if you look at the step size, what's my step size? In one case, it's zero. That's the continuous model. And the other, it's, and the truth is 10 to the minus 43. And then what everybody else is doing is like 10 to the minus six or something. It's like absurdly inaccurate. Okay, maybe 10 to the minus 12 if you're lucky. But, but, but like zero is so much closer to the truth. The infinite frame rate is so much closer to the truth than any frame rate that you could possibly you know, a, a build on with today's technology. And I think also anyone in this universe. Yeah. So if you want to talk about faithfulness, uh, if you want to talk about uh, proximity to the truth, the continuous model is much, much more uh, faithful to a uh, quantum discrete reality than anything that we could build out of, out of nature. Okay. So that, that that's my answer to that question. Okay. So now let's, let's go back to denotational design. I, I was saying there, there's, there's an, we, we want to use computers to build analogies between some, some non-computational, some non-computer thing, I should say, all right, and a computer. Okay. So we have to use what the, so we, we got to decide what, at what level we're going to talk about the reality of the computer. And I was mentioning the reality of the computer is analog or quantum discrete. Okay. Neither one of those, right, are, are how we program. We program with a digital abstraction. That's fine. So let's just be honest and say we're not talking about reality. We're talking about a digital abstraction. It's fine. Okay. So within that digital abstraction, it is it's bits, it's not numbers, it's not trees, it's not graphs, it's bits and bits patterns, okay? So how can I possibly solve a question? How can I possibly answer a question about numbers or trees or graphs or mathematical functions or relations, right? Or probability distributions by using this thing that's a pattern of bits. They're just, they're like, it's a category error. They're different kinds of things, okay? And the answer is you make an analogy, okay? Okay, but it's not analogy in the way most people use the word. Most people use the word analogy in a very sloppy way, right? So it, it it's kind of resembles, and if you look too closely, it breaks down. That's an example of what I meant by uh, uh, a harmful fiction, right? So you say, this thing is like this other much simpler thing. And then after a few days, you find out that you're wondering like, what the heck? I can't explain this behavior. And you come back to me and I say, well, it's because I lied to you and you believe me. Right. So, so in order, so in order to like do no harm, right? Um, we have to we have to use precise analogies. We have to use truthful analogies. Okay. So in mathematics, we we have developed, you know, over the last few hundred years, we've developed a, a notion of of a precise exact analogy, and that's called homomorphism. Okay. So um, homomorphism is means this: you you have you have a language. 
okay? And you're gonna apply that language in two different settings. Okay? So uh, uh, for example, I'll take groups. So the idea of, of a group in mathematics is, is you have some uh, associative operation with an identity and an inverse, okay? And it satisfies certain laws. The identity is the identity with respect to the binary operation, associative operation, and the inverse is the inverse. If you combine the thing with the inverse, you get, you get the identity, okay? So that, 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 that's, the, that's what a group is. And there are a whole bunch of groups out there. Uh, rational numbers, real numbers are groups. Uh, 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 symmetry groups, uh, the, the kind of uh, spatial uh, transformations you can apply to something or even non-spatial transformation. You, you apply to something and then you get kind of out what you got in to a certain level of examination. Uh, symmetry is, is a group. You, you can compose them. That's the multiplication, so to speak. And you, and you can undo them, do them backwards. That's the inverse. Okay. Anyway, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of these things. Okay. Now, so there, there's, and in particular, there's more than one of them. So now you can ask the question, take two of these groups and you can ask how they relate, okay? And I wanna relate them by an analogy. I wanna use one of them to tell a story about the other one, okay? So you hope oh, you get where I'm going here. This is, we're talking about engineering, okay? So let me make a simple, a simpler example. Instead of, instead of a group that has an inverse, um, I'm gonna do a monoid, okay? So a monoid is just something that has an operation that's associative and it has, it has an identity. It doesn't necessarily have an inverse. Um, so if, if you think about in programming, there are a bunch of monoids come up. One of them is numbers, natural numbers with zero and addition. <clears throat> okay. So addition is associative and zero is the identity done. You qualify. Okay. Another thing comes up in programming is let's say lists, even strings, strings being like a list of characters, whether implemented that way or not. Okay. So we have, we have, uh, we have natural numbers and we have, uh, strings, I'll call it. Okay. Strings form another monoid. There, the associative operation, the one I'm thinking of, is concatenation, and the identity is the empty string. Okay, so here we have two monoids. They speak the same language, associative operation with identity. They both obey the laws. Now, are they related to each other in any interesting way? Well, yes, they are. If you take the length of a string, you get a natural number, okay? But it's much more in in intimately related than that, the, the two which is that the length of the empty string is zero. In other words, the length of the identity is the identity. The length of the concatenation is the sum of the lengths. Okay. So length is a homomorphism between two monoids, the monoid of strings and the monoid of natural numbers. There are a bunch of homomorphisms, slide rules. You're, you're, you're too young. I'm almost too young, <clears throat> but I learned to use a slide rule when I was a kid because my old, I had older brothers and they had slide rules. And I was curious. Slide rules are a mechanical way of doing computation. Okay. Well, the clever thing is not addition. The easy thing is addition. So if I have two sticks and they have marking, regular markings on them, and you know, like particularly I have a zero in the regular, right? I can I can add numbers like three and five, but I take a stick and I start at zero and I, I march down to three, right? And I take my second stick and I align the zero of my second stick with the three on the first stick, right? And then I look out five more. And then I draw the line from the zero of the first stick to the five of the second stick, and the answer is eight. Right? So if, if I take these two things, right, and slide them, I can do addition. Okay, so that's easy mechanically. How about multiplication? Oh crap, that's, that seems like a lot harder, okay? That's what logarithms are for, and that's what a slide rule is about. So a slide rule is about a homomorphism, uh, it's a homomorphism between addition and multiplication. 
So if you take the logarithm of a product, you get a sum. You know this, right? The log of A times B is log A plus log B. Oh, that's interesting. What's the log of one? It's zero. Oh, that's interesting. So we said log maps the, the, the associative operation of one monoid to the association of the other, the associative operation of the other, and it maps the identity of one to the identity of the other. So we're saying, so log, like length, is, an ex, is a precise uh, analogy. So length is a precise analogy between strings and natural numbers, and logarithms is between numbers considered multiplicatively and numbers considered additively. And what made them so darn useful is, is that by turning multiplication into addition, we already know how to compute addition uh, mechanically by sliding things, right? And we had no way to do a multiplication quickly and accurately. Yeah, so this was, this was a very important invention. Okay. Now let's consider something that kind of more interesting computation. Okay. All right. So um, the, I, the idea is, is just, just take this analogy. And we're going to say my simple story, that's the one, that's a specification. That's the one I give the user. That is, that's going to be one example of a monoid, a ring, or whatever. It's going to be one example of something that speaks a language. My implementation is going to speak the same language. Okay. You can't have a homomorphism unless you speak the same language. So what I mean by, uh, you know, the, what you mean by the, the, uh, this operation is what I mean by this, op, you know, it, it, trans, it translates by the homomorphism to what I mean. Yeah, faithfully, every operation. Yeah. Um, okay, so with programming, it's exactly the same thing. So, so denotational design is this very simple uh, idea that I found enormously effective, which, which is you tell a very simple story that has nothing to do with the implementation. Okay. It, 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 it's the story about how, what I want, you know, what, what functionality I want that I'm willing to build an implementation out of. And I'm interested in it, even if I wasn't interested in computers. I'm interested in it in itself. Computers are a means to an end, okay? So I want to describe that world, okay? And let's, let's, say it's, let's say it's adding numbers, adding natural numbers, even something really simple, okay? And now I have, but, but I, want to, I want to like implement it. I want to help you to add numbers and do it dependably and do it quickly. Right, so dependable and efficient. Those are our values. Right, so I'm going to use this machine that seems to be good at stuff like that. Oops, here's a problem: the machine doesn't deal with numbers; it only deals with bits. Even that's not true; it only deals with voltages. Right, right. So, so what the heck? Uh, I guess I can't use a machine to compute numbers. No, I can by making an analogy. Okay, and the analogy is is ah, there's some way in which I'm going to interpret these bit patterns as if they were numbers. Okay, that's like interpreting a string as its length or interpreting a kind of multiplicative operation as an, as an additive operation. Okay, so there's, there's going to be this interpretation. So I want, to do, I want to describe something computational and I want to give an interpretation for it, or I would use the word, and I use the word denotation. I want to give a denotation for it. I want to map that implementation into this other much simpler world, a world that has nothing to do with computers. Okay. And I'm going to make them speak the same language because what I'm really going to give you is a, is a piece of software or hardware. And what you're really going to do with it is, is tickle it with bits, not numbers. Okay. So you have numbers in your head. You're going to translate them to bits somehow. Someone's going to do that for you. Some other piece of software, right? That somebody had to write. And they, when they had to write that, they had to really think about how you relate bits to numbers. How you relate the bits and numbers to each other. Yeah. So I'm going to give you this thing that only deals, that only messes with bits because it's a, it's a computer. It's, I mean, it's this fiction we call digital computation. I'm going to give you one of those. Okay. And, but you've got numbers. So what do you do? Well, you have to like encode them into bits. Okay. What bit pattern should you encode your inputs into? The answer is any bit pattern that denotes the number you have in mind. 
okay? Now, I, I could have said the, the binary encoding of your natural number, but it just, it, it's, a, it's a funny kind of accident of, of binary numbers that they, uniquely, that, that, that they uniquely represent. And in fact, it's not true. They don't uniquely represent because of zeros and, and things, okay? So, so you have to come up with a binary representation, a, a sequence of bits, such that if you apply the denotation function to that sequence of bits, the interpretation, it maps back, it maps to the number you had in mind. Okay, it's a bit of a backward sounding story, but that's actually what the truth, truth it is. I could say you, you convert your, your number into binary representation, but what I mean is you come up with a binary representation uh, whose interpretation is the number you have in mind. Okay, now, you, now what do you do? Then what do you do? That's step, that's step one, there's a three step process. Okay, in your mind, there's a one step process. I'm gonna go from a number to another number. Okay. That's the thing I want to, I want to like take the sign of this number, get this other, or I want to square it. Let's say it's a natural number. I'm going to square it, get this other number. That's a one-step process. What I'm saying is when you use computers, you have to instead go through a three-step process. Okay. And that three-step process is, and, and, and those four pieces form the analogy. So instead of going from a number directly to the number that is at square, you have to do this instead. Go to a number, that's the input, convert it to binary. Okay. What it means to do it right is that if you interpret that binary, you get the number. Okay. Now we're going to stick the binary number through the implementation. Ah, that's what the that's what the implementation wants. It wants bit patterns, and you've given it one. Okay. Now you get a bit pattern out. I want a number out. What do I do? I interpret it, right? Through this through this well defined interpretation function that 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 uh, that turns bits uh, uh, into numbers. When it turns into numbers, I don't mean it's a machine that does that. I mean there's a mathematical definition. This is what I mean by the bit pattern. Okay. Now what does it mean that my implementation is correct? Okay. Oh, I won't hold up. I won't make gestures because I listen to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So imagine in your mind, dear listener, a rectangle. That okay. The top uh, edge of the rectangle is, is your squaring function. It goes from numbers to numbers, and it does squaring. Okay. That's what you care about. The other three legs, okay, are the the two verticals are are going upward, and they map from bit vectors into numbers. Okay. And the third at the bottom is the implementation. So the one at the top is the one you think about. The edge at the bottom is the implementation. The in two bits. vertical edges, yes, in bits. And the two vertical right. ones are, are, are saying, what does it mean that this, what, what does this bit computation have to do with a number computation? And it's saying exactly, well, you interpret the input, you interpret the output. Okay, and then, and, and if you feed, so, so what you do is, is you start with a bit pattern of input. This is what it means to be correct. For every bit pattern that you might input, if I interpret it as a number and square that number, that's one path. Another path is I take that bit representation, put it through the implementation. I'm going to get a bit, a bit representation. And if I interpret that as a number, okay, do I get the same result or do I get different results? To be correct means you get the same result. That's what, that's what correct means. Okay. This is, this is the idea of denotational design. Okay. So is, is, is that we have these, we have the specification and, the, and it, it, it's in a domain that's nothing to do with computation. We have, uh, I don't mean it doesn't have to be computable or something like that. I mean, it's not about machines. We have another thing, the implementation, which is all about machines. It's motivated by the problem you actually are, are interested in. And then we have the specifics about what, what do the two have to do with each other? That's the interpretation, okay? Now that, so that, 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 that's one notion of what it means to be correct. Now, denotational design is a little more specific than that. And it, it's the following. <clears throat> it says there's a particularly beautiful, <laughs> elegant, um, way to, 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 to formulate these uh, implementations and specifications and correctness proofs, okay? Oh, yeah, so 
Correctness means I want those two paths to be always produce the same results. A proof is a proof that that is in fact the case. So for all inputs, if you interpret the input and then apply the mathematical function, it's the same as if you apply the implementation and then interpret the result. Okay? Category theory, theory, that's called the commuter diagram. That's all it is. It's, it's like the most natural notion of correctness. If you don't, didn't know about categories, try to figure out something precise, hopefully you'd come up with that one. Yeah. Okay. So denotational design takes this idea a little further. It's to say, now, let's suppose these two worlds, the specification on the top and the implementation on the bottom, we're going to, I want to be able to talk about things in those worlds. So I'm going to need a language. Now, I don't mean a programming language and I don't mean syntax. I mean a vocabulary. Okay, to talk about those things. Where am I going to get my vocabulary? I'm going to get it from abstract algebra, not from programming. Okay, so I want, so I want to, I want to have, uh, I want to know that. Uh, so my ideal situation is this: it turns out that the, in the world of specifications, the natural one, I didn't have to make it be this way. It's naturally a monoid. The things that you're talking about, they're natural numbers. They form a monoid. They do. Okay. And I want to use the same language, in other words, the same algebraic abstraction, monoid, to talk about the specification. Uh, I mean, the implementation. Okay? So I want them both to say, here, here's a monoid, but I want more than that. I want it to be a homomorphism. I want the interpretation of the implementation. Right? When I say this is what the implementation means, this is, this is what, the, what the data types mean, I want it to be homomorphic because homomorphism means a precise analogy. Because when I, when I design, it's not so much about applications. If you build applications, applications are quite rigid. They have a user interface, but it's usually pretty ad hoc and so on. You don't expect to be systematic. But if you're building something of, of like really composable, powerful functionality, something that's infinitely expressive, languages and libraries, okay? Then we need essentially a language of, to talk about what are all the different things in the implementation. That's your API. That's what we call an API programming, right? What are all the different things in the theory? Okay, so that 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 is also a vocabulary. Now, what I'm saying is use the same vocabulary for them and interpret the representation, the data representations homomorphically, okay? Because what that means is, is it, 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 because it satisfies this goal of, I wanna give you a simple true story that helps you and never hurts you, okay, as my user, okay? So what I'm saying is I'm gonna build an implementation and the API I'm gonna give you is actually the monoid API. It, that'll often not be enough, okay? Then I'll make it richer, maybe it's a group, Maybe it is a ring, got addition and multiplication, distributed property. Maybe it is a, uh, what's called a semi-module, a modular vector space, a higher dimensional kind of thing, like linear algebra for machine learning. Okay. These things have, have uh, vocabularies, they have mathematical properties. Okay. So if I'm going to do like a linear algebra library, I know linear algebra is, it is an, it is an algebraic abstraction. Linear algebra is all about a notion of Vector spaces, these higher dimensional things would be vector spaces, could be a little bit less, like a, what's called a module or semi-module, okay? Um, and that has nothing to do with computation. It has nothing to do with matrices, and it has nothing to do with uniform intuples, these things that people call vectors, matrices. It, it, it is about abstract math, mathematical quantities, okay? Now I'm going to build an implementation. That's going to be different. That's going to have bits, and it's going to have things that I think of as being matrices and uniform intuples, arrays, that kind of thing, higher dimensional and lower dimensional arrays, Okay. But that's not the thing of interest. That's the thing with which I want to form a precise analogy. Okay. So linear algebra wants to speak a certain language, and that, and that is uh, <clears throat> that's the language of vector spaces. So you have uh, you have vectors, you have two types, scalars and vectors. So lin so linear algebra is about vector spaces over a particular ring. Okay, so the scalars have to form what's called a ring. Sometimes you can just uh, so sometimes you want more, and you want it to be a commutative ring. Sometimes you want more than that. You want it to be a field. <clears throat> field means you have division. 
Um, right. Okay. So, but you don't often, you don't need that much. So it could just be a ring. So that's the scalars. Now, what are the vectors? Well, vectors are, well, there's the kind of things they, they, we're not going to say what they are because there's actually a lot of different kinds of things they can be. That's the point of abstract algebra. So, of, uh, so of their are operations. Okay. One operation is I can add two vectors. Okay. And another is that I can, I can multiply a scalar by a vector. Now, and so, that, so that's part of it. But the really, the, the, the kind of the meat of, vector, of linear algebra is not about the vectors, it's about the linear transformations. So linear algebra is about linear functions between vector spaces, okay? So, wh so what does linear mean? It means it's a homomorphism, okay? So vector spaces speak a language. The word linear means homomorphic for the language of vector spaces. Homomorphic means literally the word, the Greek words means preserved structure, same homomorphism, shape, same shape. Okay. So homomorphism is a, is an operation you can apply like length to a string that if, if it is, if the input is one of these, you know, is in a, so is the binary com combination, the, the associative operator, right? Then the, so will the output be, it'll be, it'll be a binary uh, combination. If the input is the identity, the output will be the identity with vector spaces. It's like that. If you apply to a scaling uh, of a vector, you get a scaling of a vector out. You, so if you apply it S times U, you apply a linear function S times U, you get S times F of U. So F of S times U equals S times F of U. That, that's one. The other property is F of U plus V equals F of U plus F of V. Okay. So another way to say that is that linear transformations are precise analogies between two vector spaces because they, everything you say in one maps to something you say with exactly the same language in the other. Okay. That's, this is what we do. This is the only thing we do in software and hardware engineering is, is, is we make a, we make a novel thing, right? That's going to be this library that, that is running on a computer. Okay. Now who, now whoever wanted one of those, we only want those in order to solve other problems. We never want those for themselves there. Cause I want to do linear algebra. Oh, okay. That has nothing to do with computers. Okay. But I'm going to build something and I want to talk in the language the same language I talk about linear maps, okay? Linear transformations, linear functions, they all mean the same thing, okay? Because that's a much simpler, that's a much simpler domain. I'll give you an example of how reasoning is incredibly more simple in the denotational model than it is in the operational model. So I'm calling here linear functions is the denotational model, matrices is the operational model. Okay, matrices is just a representation of linear maps. That's what they're for. That's the only thing they're for, okay? So, so, uh, but to make an analogy, we have to say, how do you interpret, just like I interpret a bit pattern as a number, how do you interpret a matrix as a linear transformation? That is, that's the key question. If you're going to use matrices, the only, the, the important question is, in what sense does a matrix represent a linear transformation? You have to be really clear about that. Okay. And you, and you can do that. If you think about, if you think about what matrix vector multiplication, you multiply a matrix by a vector. Okay, we're saying you take a matrix and you got a vector and you get a vector out, right? Okay. Another way to say that is you take a matrix. This is if anybody who's know about currying will recognize this. You take a instead of taking a matrix and a vector and you get a vector, let's say you take a matrix and what you get out is a, a function from vectors to vectors. It's the same thing. All I did was curry my earlier explanation. Instead of saying it takes two arguments and gives a vector, I'm saying it takes one argument and gives a function from vectors to vectors. But it's, it's a one-to-one -one notion. But the reason I did that is next we say, what kind of function? What are those functions like? Guess what? They're all linear. Every, right? When you apply a matrix to a vector and you get a new vector, 
that that's the output depends linearly. It is a linear function of the input vector. And that linear function is describable by the matrix. And that is the one and only point of having the matrix in the first place is to encode that linear map. Okay. That is why we have matrices. Now, now why does it matter? Why would we bother making a distinction? I was like, I, that's the same thing. I worked with graphic people for years and years and years, and they just identify the two. Transformation of matrices, they mean the same thing. And to me, it was always super important to, to, to clarify the distinction. Okay, and there are, there are two at least kinds of reasons why it's so darn important to make this distinction. And I mean pragmatically. I don't mean philosophically or aesthetically or something. I mean pragmatically. Okay, so one reason is this, that there are things that are true about linear transformations. Well, there, there are things that are true about linear transformations and matrices, okay, that are much easier to prove on linear transformations than on matrices. So if you care about truth, you have to care about proof because it's the only reliable road. Uh, otherwise, you just get in the neighborhood and the more complex it is, the, f the, the further away from truth you are, right? It's just un unavoidable unless you're just the luckiest person, okay? So, um, uh, so an example of this is... Um, uh, matrix multiplication is associative. Okay, so matrix multiplication is associative. Okay, what the heck is matrix multiplication? Oh God, let's see, I learned this in class. There's a bunch of like, there's some columns and some rows and I, I kind of remember you take some rows and some columns and you match them up and then what do you do when you get two of these? You multiply some corresponding elements and then you got a bunch of numbers and what you add them all up. Okay, so that's something to do with that, right? Now that's, that, that is what it is. Um, and it's quite complex. You got to get it just right. And it's easier to get wrong than right. Okay. Now prove that's associative. Okay. So I define matrix multiplication in a pretty complex way. I'm not saying it's more complex than what people are learning. It's exactly what people are learning. Now, now there's a really, really important property of matrix multiplication, which is associative. That's an extremely important property. It's important in programming because we care about performance and matrix multiplication is associative only denotationally, not operationally. Okay. This, right. So in other words, the meaning of a matrix, uh, it, 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 what, what do I mean by that? Um, if you take, if, if you have three matrices and they're in the right shapes to be multiplied by each other, M is like A times B times C. Should I multiply? So associativity says you can multiply A by C, uh, A by B, and then by C, or you can multiply B by C and then pre-multiply by A. They give you the same answer. That's true. Same answer. In other words, denotational, right? Operationally, no, they're, for, they're incredibly different. The, the, like the operations you perform are very, very different in those two cases. Should I care? If you care about efficiency, you better darn well. Because, because, because us, uh, major publication is very non-associative operationally. And it is entirely, it is exactly uh, associative uh, denotationally. Okay, so that's why it matters. Okay, so now hopefully I've motivated. You should you should go ahead and prove that matrix multiplication is associative. And you're gonna always say I already proved it, or it's in a book, or whatever. All right. Well, somebody had to do this work, and if you don't know how to do that work, then you can't do it on your problem. You know that is kind of like it, but not quite. Right. You need to know how to do these things if you, if you want reliable software. Okay. So prove so. So if the problem is proven, a composition, I mean, multiplication is associative, right? This is a very, very hard proof, which is you just go through and you use those, de you use the definitions, right? You do it in code, it's going to be terrible, especially if it's imperative code, right? Like for loops and stuff, like, oh my God, right? Or if you use summation notation, right? It's still complicated, all right? So, so what I'm suggesting is this is a very hard proof. It's a very costly proof. I don't mean 
Nobody's done it. Of course, people have done it over and over and over, and they've all suffered. Now I want to give you an extremely simple proof, okay? which is this. Um, matrix multiplication, so matrices denote linear functions. Matrix multiplication denotes function composition. Fun con function composition is associative. Therefore, matrix multiplication is associative. Okay. It, it's because the reason that matrix multiplication is associative is because of what it means, not because of how it works. Okay. All right. That was a subjective statement. Let me try to say that more objectively. You can look, you can try to answer the question of matrix associative with matrix multiplication operationally or denotationally. If you look at it operationally, then you're going to have to think about how it works. Okay. And then the proof that you get the same answer is extremely complex. And it's not even in the realm of how things works, right? You, you do two very different computations. Somehow you get the same answer, all right? You have to go through all that. If instead you say, no, the purpose of a matrix is to denote a linear transformation. And I'm going to be entirely clear about how that is, the mapping from a matrix to a linear function. That's the same mapping we were just talking about that goes from a bit pattern to a natural number, all right? or for logarithms from a multiplicative kind of number to an additive kind of number. It's, it's, it's exactly the same operation. It's the vertical arrows in that, uh, that, that rectangle. Okay. So, so we, so the very first thing you would do if you were interested in, in, lin in computing with linear algebra is you'd say, okay, I get, I get linear algebra. I know what it is. It's about linear. It's about functions that are linear, nothing to do with uh, matrices. You may have been taught otherwise, but I'm sorry that that was a disservice to you to think that, that linear algebra is about matrices, okay? It's about functions that are linear, okay? So now we say, well, I want to implement on a computer. Oh, well, geez, I'm going to have to decide how to implement these functions. There are a bunch of choices. One of them is to implement them as, as what we call functions, and particularly in functional programming, not what a pair of people call functions because those aren't functions. Those are sort of procedures, but, but, but genuinely functional, purely functional people call functions, yeah. So you could do that. That's fine. It's easy, and, and you, it's easy to do a correct linear algebra library. However, it's going to be very inefficient for a lot of useful purposes. Okay. Matrices are often, but not always, a much more efficient representation okay, of, of, of functions that are linear. Okay. I can give you examples, but I, I don't think it's, it's, it's worth going there unless you really want to know. All right. So, so we need to know how does a matrix represent? How does it, so, so how does it denote a, li a linear function? Okay. We get that right. Okay. Now we no longer have to say, okay, one funny thing about matrix multiplication, not only do you have to prove it's associative, which is hard, right? You have to prove the identity also about it. That's hard. Um, you even have to come up with it in the first place, right? Come up with matrix multiplication. How on earth would you come up with it, right? There is a completely systematic way to do that with denotational design, okay? And every denotational design works in the same way. You say, I, have, I know what my denotation is, linear functions, okay? My mathematical model, simple mathematical model. I'm going to choose a representation. I don't, want, I don't want to say I know what it is. I'm going to say I'm going to choose one, okay? Maybe I'm going to choose matrices just because everybody else is choosing it, or maybe I have a good reason, okay? Often people choose it wrongly, and that's, and that's really harmful, okay? But let's, let's, say, let's say that's the right, it, it's, it's a choice you want to make. I'm going to use matrices. So I got to be clear about what it means, okay? Now, what should matrix, now, how should matrix multiplication work, Okay. Do you just get to write anything down you want? It's as good as anything else. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion these days. Hmm? Is it what are what are the criteria for success of matrix multiplication? Does it like does your program have to be a legitimate? Does it like have to parse? Is that is that your bar? Does it have to uh, type check? Is that your bar? 
if it has to type check, what language are you talking about? Are you talking about, uh, you know, some really weakly type language? You're talking about pretty darn strongly type language. Is it going to be like Haskell? That's got pretty strong types. Is it going to be Agda? That's got much, much stronger types. Right. So what, what, what are your criteria? Okay. Um, with, Has with Agda, you have a chance of actually getting an adequate criteria, but not unless you really try. You could still give an inadequate one. Okay. So type checking just means um, the most egregious boneheaded answers you might give are rejected automatically. That's what type checking is about. Okay. In, in other words, things that are superficially obviously wrong, that's what type checking is for. That's some parsing and type checking are, are to eliminate those. Okay. What about all the others? Most of them are wrong for matrix multiplication. Okay. So type checking isn't enough. What is enough? Okay. How about now, testing? we could give... Okay. How about testing? All right. So how do you know when you've tested enough? That's, that's the question. Yeah. Testing cannot get to truth. Testing yeah. can only detect errors. And worse than that, it can only detect the obvious errors. And obvious mm. errors are, are our friends, not our enemies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? It, it's just like pain, right? Pain in the human body serves a constructive purpose. It tells us that there's something that needs our attention. If you get rid of the pain, you, you lose that message. Obvious bugs are exactly the same thing. Obvious bugs are, are, are there to, to say there's a problem. Do we want to silence that information or do we want to really explore it and learn everything we can? So I want to learn everything I can. Okay. So testing chases away the most obvious bugs <clears throat> and leaves the most, the more subtle ones behind. Okay. And also in theory, of course, you know, in most cases you can't test enough to get to truth. Yeah. So testing can't be the answer. So what can be the answer? What, what makes multiple, what makes your matrix multiplication correct and mine not correct? Mine that's like completely goofy. So denotational design gives an answer, and it's always the same question, and it's always the same answer, and it's this. Matrix multiplication must be must form a perfect analogy to function composition. Okay? So linear maps speak a language, and matrices speak the same language. Okay? We know what we we know what the um, uh, we know what composition means for linear maps. Okay. That's what matrix multiplication should mean. Okay. So, so matrix multiplication, we have, we have to say, what does it have to do with, so we, we know what the input and output, the input to matrix multiplication is matrix, two matrices, and output is another matrix. Okay. But those matrices have meanings, they're linear maps. So is there a function on linear maps that is a perfect analogy? Really say it the other way around. Is matrix multiplication a perfect analogy to some simpler notion on linear maps? And the answer is yes, composition. Composition is the one and only motivation for matrix multiplication. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's some other uses. But in linear algebra, that's why we have matrix multiplication. Okay, so now what does it mean for matrix multiplication to be correct? It means it means the analogy holds. It means that if you if you take two matrices, remember that's like the bit representations. That's the machine representations, the low level. If you take these two and you apply this operation, we're calling, we're, we're, we call it matrix multiplication, but we shouldn't. We should call it matrix composition. Multiplication is, is a misleading word, right? Because, because the analogy isn't to multiplication, it's to composition. So that's what we should call it, multiplication. Matrix addition is analogous to linear map addition. Good job. Matrix multiplication is analogous to uh, linear map composition. Oops, bad naming job. We should have called it matrix composition instead, okay? So, so now the theorem is just this. If you take two matrices 
and you put it into this function and you get a matrix out and you interpret it as a linear map, you get exactly the same result as if you take those two matrices and interpret it as linear maps and you compose them. Okay, that's the commutative square. That's exactly what it means to be correct. Okay, now if, if that's your definition of correctness, if, if you have implemented matrix multiplication correctly by that definition, it cannot help but be, but be associative. You can prove that without even knowing the definition of matrix multiplication, only knowing that it's correct. Okay. Now there's a little, there, there's, there's an important hitch, which is you have to say what you mean by equality. Right. 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 That, that's a hard problem. Is, yeah. Yeah. Well, there, but, there, but it is a hard problem, but there's, a, there's always a lovely answer in denotational thinking. Right. Okay. So, well, it depends. If, so we want, so equality is important. Okay, and it's part of our vocabulary. Even if we don't implement it, it's part of our vocabulary, right? To say like, you know, this matrix multiplied by that is equal to that. We have to say what we mean by equal, okay? So equal equality is also part of the language of linear functions. Okay? We know what it means for linear functions to be equal. So look, they're talking the same language, the language of equality. Do they talk it consistently? In other words, in perfect analogy or don't they? Okay, so the, the analogy for equality is simpler than matrix multiplication. It's saying if you have two matrices, then, then they are equal if and only if their meanings are equal. Okay, so you have these two matrices and you put them through a unary. You, you, yeah, you, you put them through, yeah, you put the two matrices yeah, through equality. And I want to know if, if I put them through the thing I'm calling equality, okay, I, sh I shouldn't say it is equality. I'm just, it's, a, it's, it's an operation for which I want to use the word equality. I mean, I should only use that word if it fulfills the perfect analogy. Otherwise, I'm giving you a gun to shoot your foot with. Okay? So, so two matrices should be equal if and only if their meanings are equal. Okay? This isn't true about just matrices. It's true of every, everything you do in programming. Okay? What the, the notion of equality on your representations for to be in a sensible universe has to be homomorphically faithful. In other words, things are equal exactly when their meanings are equal. Okay. Otherwise, I'm telling you, these, these representations mean the same thing, but they're not equal, right? So in other words, you should be, you should treat, you should think of them as this, these things that are equal. And yet they are unequal in a way that you can detect. Okay. That's an example of how I break an analogy and set you up to hurt yourself. I'm saying think of them as linear maps, and then I'm giving you an operation that is inconsistent with that uh, story. Okay. So if you if you define matrix multiplication, if it, it not even defined, if you specify it as saying it has one job, which is to which is to full, fulfill its part in this homomorphism, it has to be the homomorphic, the analog of uh, composition. Okay, that's its only job. So I come up with a, a definition and I prove that in fact the homomorphism applies and I, and I have to use this bit about equality. If you, if you use that definition of equality, which is always the right thing to do in engineering, then uh, laws like associativity will always follow. You never need to prove them. They always follow from the, from the homomorphic uh, denotational discipline. Um, that it's in, it's, it's examples in my paper, uh, type class morphisms uh, in denotational design, denotational design and class morphism. Um, that I, I illustrate, you know, why that's the case. You don't need to prove things. If you ever need to prove uh, an algebraic property, it's a symptom that you um, are picking away at the surface, right? And 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 if you prove those properties, okay, you just know that the properties hold, but you still don't know it means what you want. If you prove it means what you want, you don't have to prove the properties. They always follow from the discipline. Okay, so 
So I just give you an example. So the data instructional design is just this. You say, I want to build something. What does it mean? It means I'm doing linear algebra. What's linear algebra about? It's about linear maps. Isn't it about matrices? No, it's about linear maps. Okay. So then, then I'm going to say, okay, what representation you want to use? Okay, let's try, let's try the first one. We'll do, let's do a bunch. One of them will be matrices. Okay. So to say what it means for that to be a representation, to say precisely what it means is I have to say in what way it denotes or how do, how do I map from the representation of the meaning? What's the mathematical operation? That operation, by the way, doesn't even have to be computable. We're never going to compute with them. We're only going to compute representations. We're only going to think with meanings. It's these consistency uh, properties, the homomorphisms, that guarantee that the way we think and the way that the thing actually runs are consistent, that the difference between them, because of course they're different, but the difference is undetectable through this vocabulary. That's what it means. In other words, we've given somebody a language in which they can think about a simple thing and yet get it to run on top of physics efficiently. Even though, and, you know, or, or if you want to think about running on our machine and our machine is bit patterned, which it isn't really, but if we pretend that, we, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you this bit pattern manipulator that, that actually implements, you know, uh, linear map composition correctly. If, but yeah, of course you have to be clear about what you mean by uh, how do the matrices uh, relate to the linear maps. Okay. So that's all, that's the denotational design story. A simple, you, you, you think, what, what do I want to talk about? Not with. Okay. So I think in the first probably our conversation. Um, I, I shared a, a, a Dijkstra's comment about uh, computer science is no more about computers than astronomy is about telescopes. Okay. All right. So linear algebra is not about computers, right? We use computers. At, I got a computer is a telescope with which to look at linear algebra. That's what it's for. Okay. But it's a pretty darn clever tool that you can look at a whole lot of different things with. But every one of those things is a different analogy. And if you're not clear about what the analogy is, you can't even be clear about how to ask the question of whether your implementation is correct. Because, of course, my matrix program does not implement linear algebra because linear algebra is about linear functions and my matrices are something else. Of course, my CPU can't do uh, multiplication on numbers or addition on numbers because it manipulates bits, not numbers, right? So that's why you have to be totally clear about the, the interpretation of the representations into this mathematical world. Once you do that, and then if you use this homomorphic discipline, okay, then, then all the properties necessarily hold. And, and, and you know so much more than just proving that the properties hold. You know exactly what it means. I don't want to just prove this thing's a vector, you know, that uh, something's a vector space, or I, I don't want to just prove that, uh, I want to prove it's, it means a particular vector space, linear functions. Right. Um, I'm sorry. That was that wasn't a good example. Um, I, I I don't want something to just manipulate bit patterns. I want it to mean you know a particular manipulation of bit patterns. So I got to be really clear about these relationships. Now that sounds a little heady, and it's not the way software engineers are trained, but it's incredibly simple. In in in, in Gilman's sense, you can make this notion of correctness. Of the question, of both the question and the answer. Okay, you make the, but the most important is the question. You can make the question precise and very concisely in terms of mathematics that we have learned for a variety of other reasons, not esoteric mathematics. I I, I very rarely use esoteric mathematics. I use category theory, which people think is esoteric, but I'm a category theory newbie. I use very very simple category yeah. theory. Yeah. yeah. It's just because the, it's just because there are some patterns I want that are captured there that are not captured by monoids and rings and stuff. Right, right. Need more abstraction, but um, 
Yeah, I like I like that. It's as if the notational design is bridging the gap of our implementation details, right? Because that that is there there is some hairy stuff that the computer has to, yes. to get away with because that's how yeah. the computer works, right? That, that's a, the real world yeah. is the implementation. Yeah. Or, or or maybe because there's a really simple implementation that's terribly inefficient. And I have a super clever, right. complicated one that, that's very efficient. I want to right. make darn sure that it gives the same answer. Right, right, right. So then you're you're providing this this, this translation, let's put that way, so that we can mm-hmm. actually think about it. Think about exactly. it in the terms that we can, that, that we know how to think about it properly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the denotational model and the and the implementation are optimized for op in opposite directions okay so so we need specifications and we need implementations and they both have um values or they both have forces attached to them and they're pulling in opposite directions okay so the, the specification is pulled toward precise simplicity the implementation is pulled toward efficiency okay and those are not always but often enough to be important opposite directions like for instance, if all you want is linear maps, don't use matrices. Use functions. It's so much simpler. You'll never, you never, you can't get it wrong. Matrices are all. There's all kinds of ways to get matrices wrong. I work with <laughs> graphics people. Seem like half of them like to multiply the matrix, uh, vector matrix. Half of them like to put it on the left. Half of them put it on the right. The, <laughs> and then the worst thing, right, is is that they shared code, and that code was. Um, and those matrices are square often, three by three or four by four, which means if you get the order wrong, it'll still like nobody's going to catch you. The type checker won't catch you. The runtime won't catch you. You'll just get a wrong answer. All right. So that, that's the people I work with. And half the community, and they do these opposite conventions, right? And they work together. So it's disastrous. But that problem goes away as soon as, as soon as you introduce denotation. You say, this is exactly what, this is my interpretation. I have, an inter- I have matrix interpretation. You have matrix interpretation. The, 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 the terrible situation there was they had the same representation with different meanings, okay? And, and nothing automated was going to catch that inconsistency, right? Which means they were allowed to put things together and have them not work right, yeah. So if instead you had, you have, I have a matrix, but I have an interpretation of my matrix. You have a matrix and interpretation. As soon as we try to put those together and prove correctness, we're going to have to reconcile interpretations. It's going to fall down, right? Because the theorems depend on having the same interpretation, Yeah. So that, that error is going to get caught by the type checker if you use a, a modern dependently typed language and you use denotational design as your discipline. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so here, here's, I think, a fundamental point, excuse me for interrupting you, is, is that specifications and implementations are, are important and, and, and they're, they're, they're pulled in opposite directions quite often. Specifications should be as simple as possible and free of any kind of detail that's about implementation, operationality, or, uh, 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 you know, clever tricks, limitations of the machine or my machine model or whatever. Um, implementations should be full of that stuff and take advantage of it. Right? Implementations should be uh, should be optimized for the particular weird thing you're running on, right? Like if it's a GPU, then for goodness sake, optimize on it for a GPU. If it's FPGA, do it for that, right? Okay, so that so these are opposite directions they're pulled in. Okay, now here's so 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 I, I think inevitably, if we want good quality results. We have to allow them to be pulled apart. In other words, we have to allow specifications and implementation-like things to be different. Operational semantics puts them together. That, to me, is the fundamental flaw. Okay? So in operational semantics, it says, and like Dan pointed this out, Dan uh, Geeka said, um, 
what is it? Operation, uh, denotational semantics let you write things that are like not even computational. Like what the heck, right? Well, first of all, that's not really true. The domains do include computability. That's why they're continuous CPOs and information, that kind of stuff. But aside from that, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, operational semantics may, by its form, uh, make com well makes computability makes computation more explicit than denotational. Okay, so in that way, it, it, it kind of assures it. Denotational, maybe you agree, maybe you don't agree that it assures it. It's fine. But e even if it were the case that denotational doesn't ensure that it's that it's uh, uh, computable, operational doesn't do a good enough job of it. Okay. So operational semantics may show you that indeed it's computable, but I don't want it. I don't want something computable. I want a good implementation. I don't want something that can be implemented. I want something that is implemented well. Okay. So how do you get there? Existence of an operational semantics doesn't help. And in fact, it often hinders because it, it moves you down an operational road that's away from performance. For instance, uh, maybe you maybe you have a, a, a fairly uh, sequential operational semantics. Well, no efficient implementation is sequential in the modern era, right? Like like performance comes from parallelism in, in the era we live in, and, and and increasingly so. Okay, so so the so if, you're, if your operational semantics is is pointing you down a, de, a sequential road, you have to undo that work to get back to something more denotational, and then you can go forward. So it's harder, not easier. Okay, so with denotational. Okay, it does both a worse and better job, uh, in, in, as far as like computation, as far as like implementation. It does a worse job, and then it doesn't try to do it at all. It doesn't try at all to to like you know show you how, a recipe for computing. It does a better job, kind of in the same way, by not misleading you that it's giving you any useful notion at all of how you get an efficient implementation. So so what I so and denotational design exactly ties them together. Denotational design says you have a denotation. It's not about computation. It's about what it is. It's, Right, it's the stars. It's not the telescope. It's the thing I'm interested in, not the tool I'm using. Okay. Now I also have an implementation because I care about because I want to run it on physics on computers. Okay. Now I want those two to be consistent. I want them to be perfectly analogous. Okay. That's what a correctness proof is for. Okay. That well, that, that's what a correctness theorem and proof is for. Now I want the theorem to be. L, I want it to be simple because that makes it more valuable because it can't be proved. It's the one thing that can't be proved, so it has to be simple in order for it not to be misleading, okay? So denotational does a better job of that by removing any kind of uh, operationally motivated stuff, okay? So it gives you better simplicity. And then it doesn't give you better implementation, the operationality. It, it, in a way, helps you by not even promising it. It just says, by the way, you're going to need, you know, if you want to run this thing, you're going to need the implementation also. And then I say, okay, well, first of all, what century do I live in? The 21st century. So it's, it can't possibly be, if I care about efficiency, it can't possibly be a sequential, right? Because, I mean, sequential computers haven't existed for decades, even, you know, to the 70s, 80s, 90s, right? They, we only have machines that pretend to be sequential, that are parallel, that waste almost all their energy on that fiction. Okay, so if we want to do it now, we want it efficient. I should think about FPGA. I should think about it, uh, uh, GPU. I should think about an ASIC. I should think about some other uh, uh, wild uh, uh, what mesh of very simple processing elements, something like that. That is an efficient implementation. Okay, now what does that have to do with my specification? Well, there's a theorem, and that theorem is a homomorphism, and there's a proof, and that proof is machine checked. So what do I get is I have a specification that's incredibly 
simple to reason about and understand formally and informally. I want to know, I want to know if the thing called composition is associative. Well, yeah, because it means, you know, you know what it means. It means function composition, function composition is associative. Okay. So you can reason about it formally and informally. Okay. It, it, you also have an implementation that is a really good performance one, not, not a, not a silly kind of nominally operational, but a very excellently operational implementation. You, you have the theorem that relates to the, and you have a proof. That's, that's, that's what, that's what denotational design, it doesn't encourage you to, uh, it doesn't encourage you to conflate two things that have antithetical forces applied to them, which is specification and implementation. Yeah. Because, the, because if you conflate those two things, you cannot win or, or one, one can only win at the other's loss. How would the design, how would the, how does the, the, the language in that specification side look like here? For you to be able to reason about it mathematically. Oh God, yeah, yeah, it's incredibly simple. Um, so, so first of all, yeah, you have to have some way to talk about algebraic abstractions that, that gives you the common language. Now, you don't literally have to do that, but it's prettier if you do. Okay, so like Haskell has this thing called type classes. Agda has something that's that's similar in spirit. It's it's, it's more flexible. Agda is a, a more modern language. Um, you have to have some way to set up a, a, a being able to talk in the same language so that you can even for, you can talk about an analogy. You know, like. Plus means plus, compose means compose. Okay, so but or you could do that in a less pretty way. You could just like have a module system, or you can use names that are similar or something like that. Okay, so so we're gonna have we're gonna have our language and meanings, and it's gonna be mathematics. And, and remember, we don't ever we're never gonna have to implement it. So so three of those. Remember the the, the rectangle. The top is the specification. The bottom is the implementation. The, the the vertical sides are the interpretations of the inputs and outputs. Okay. We're only ever gonna. The idea is that is that we all is that a user only thinks about the top one, which is much simpler, right, than everything else. The implementation only ever does the bottom one. It doesn't do the sides or the top. The correctness is what ties them together. Yeah. Okay. So so what I do first is I say, well, what do I want to talk about? I want to do linear algebra. Okay. What what is the language of linear algebra? Not matrices. Linear algebra. Okay. So I got to think about it. What is that? Oh yeah. There's vector spaces or modules or semi-modules, and there's linear functions on them. That's what linear algebra is about. Okay, so what's the language? Well, uh, for, for the operations, uh, we're going to have uh, addition of linear functions, which means pointwise addition. F, F plus G is the function. You give it X, and it gives you F of X plus G of X. That's pointwise addition. Okay, so that's something that, that's done very commonly in with these linear functions. <clears throat> and we can compose them. And when we compose them, Ah, this is interesting. When you compose functions, the output type of one has to match the input type of the other, right? When you multiply matrices, the width of one has to be equal to the height of the other. Why? Because of the first thing I said, okay? Be because they denote linear maps and the, and the heights and widths are the types of the domain and codomain of those linear maps. So to say that the height of one equals the width of the other translates homomorphically into saying the output type of one is equal to the input type of the other, and therefore you can compose them. That's, that's why matrix multiplication has that. It's not, it's not for any other reason but that. Yeah. Okay. And if you know that, you can't get it wrong. Even if the two things have like a square, you can't, multi, you can't compose them in the wrong order without just being like, ah, I, I, you know, uh, just being right in front of you. All right. So what you do is you ask what vocabulary. Okay. I'm going to have addition. I'm going to have zero. I'm going to have uh, identity. I'm going to have uh, um, addition and multiplication. I'm going to have composition. Okay. There are a few other things. I might want to have first and left projection of a pair. That's that's linear. So think about what are some linear operations. 
I have a pair and I project out the first element, that's linear. Second element, that's linear. Okay. Um, if I have a value and I want to append a zero to the right or left, make a pair, zero right or left, that's also linear. Okay. So I'm going to throw in those operations. Now I'm going to say, okay, do those operations live in some kind of algebra? Is there some kind of algebra already out there that has those operations? Remember, we're not talking about matrices. Okay. I'll look around and think, ah, oh, well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's this vector space thing. Uh, but there's also categories. Categories are what gives you identity and composition. Okay. I don't want to scare. I wish people weren't scared of categories. When I say categories, just think uh, monoid, group, category. Just another one. It's simpler than the others. It's just, a category is just a monoid with types. Okay, you have an associative operation. Instead of calling it multiplication, you call it composition. Instead of saying you could take any of those two things and combine them and say, no, the only if the output type of one matches the input type of the other. That's all it is. Okay. And the identity is typed also. You don't just have one identity. You have one for every type. Identity of you know, that maps this type to itself. For matrices, you have this. That's why identity is square, because it maps from a type to itself. That's why the width and height are equal. Okay. So, so in denotational design, you say, for most important thing is what do I want to talk about? Okay. I want to talk about these linear maps. Okay. What is, and then the second question is, what is a language? What's a vocabulary in which I can express these things? I can build them up, right? Combine them, build them out of nothing, all these things. And, okay. Okay. Great. It's these operations. What algebraic abstraction already exists and we've already proven things. We've already learned it for some other reason, Mary Coman said. Okay. All right. Well, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's actually something called the particular kind of category, byproduct categories is one way to think about it. Or you can just think about the linearity stuff. It's fine. Okay. Then the next step is now, now we're going to say, okay, so that now I kind of understand the mathematical realm, the specification. That's the story I'm going to tell the user. That's exactly the story I'm going to tell the user. Nothing else. Okay. Now what about the implementer? What am I going to tell the implementer, which may be me. Okay. Maybe somebody else. Okay. What I'm going to tell them is I want you to, I want you to uh, find a way of implementing the first story. Okay. And there are, and there are two kinds of choices to make. One, uh, one is the representation you're going to use for the, for the things of interest, linear transformations. Okay. And the other is how you're going to implement the operations, which operations, the one that the first model already wants to talk about. So, so you take the language that the math wants to talk about and you make that your API. That's, that's what you do. You make that the API. Now, how do you know how to implement them correctly? Well, there's two questions. What does it mean to be correct? And then how do you get there? What it means to be correct is always the same. It's, it's a homomorphism. Okay. So about the homomorphism, you have to talk about, well, what, what, in what sense does the, you have to pick a representation and then say, how does it mean? How does it denote the other things for matrices? Pretty simple. That's what we call matrix vector multiplication curried. Yeah, exactly. Once you define that, if you don't, if you don't, if you can't answer that question, what, how does the representation mean the things we're talking about? You shouldn't try anything else. I mean, you shouldn't, like, if you don't know what the representation mean, you can't possibly uh, address the question of how to implement operations on them because it's only the meaning that guides them. You have to know what the, op the arguments mean and what the operation means. And that's all you have to know. Be because, because now you have an equation in one unknown. Okay, So every homomorphism equation in denotational design is an equation in one unknown. So you, 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 have, you, have three, you have the interpretations, and you have the operation in the semantics. And what I don't have is, I don't know is what's the operation on the, on the representation. But I have a homomorphism equation, and that's the equation in one unknown. The unknown is usually function-valued. What is matrix multiplication? Okay, so maybe people aren't always used to thinking that that's a, that's an algebra equation with one unknown, but it totally is. And with a little bit of equational reasoning, sometimes easy, sometimes hard, uh, you solve that algebra problem, and the answer to the algebra problem is a correct implementation. 
And if, if you, if anything that's an implementation, anything you might want to call an implementation that, does, that is not a solution is wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it, it's not faithful, <laughs> yeah. not right, faithful right. to the meaning of the arguments in the operation. Yeah. Everything that does is right. So one thing that I'm trying to, one thing that I'm trying to picture in my head is how to have the operational semantics solved in this, in this, in this realm, because what operational semantics is doing, and if correctly, if I'm wrong, or if I'm not picturing the problem in the right lens, mm-hmm. but it seems like you have, you have this language that is computable, or, which means that you, you have a language that can run in a sense, and you want to show that it's type safe, right? So you have a, a wage for it to run. Uh, well, when, when you're doing operational semantics, those I don't are, show it's correct. Right. Well, yeah. Usually one way to show that it's correct is, is, is truth type safety, progress and preservation, mm-hmm. right? In, in operational semantics. No. No. Mm. no. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're talking about operational semantics, those are usually the things they go after. Okay. 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 Yeah. 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 But, and, and so, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, a compl- it's a relatively complicated story. Right. So how would you picture yeah. and, and, and deal with these problems in, in the notational design? Well, what is the question that you think needs to be dealt with? Right. So that, that's, that's what I was trying to, to picture in my mind, yeah. right? So I have, I have a language. Yeah. I'm trying to design a language, yeah. right? I have this language. Yeah. So I'm thinking of, of my, my, my new cock, right? I'm, I'm trying to come uh-huh. up with a very small CIC, and I want to show yeah. that it's type safe. So I, I want to show that it, it has strong normalization. And if the types are properly, properly tied together, then... When I do a step and when I do this many battle reductions, I'll get to, to something that is also type C, that is also has yeah. this proper type, right? Yeah, yeah. So that that's something you've been trained to want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you've been conditioned to want that. And what I'm saying <laughs> is that's not that's not a natural thing to want. Okay. That, that 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 it's a teachable thing. You can teach people how to do it, and you can get them addicted to it. In other words, you can get them to want it. But but you've just described this kind of like there's this game somebody made up this game and it has got these rules operational semantics right and you follow the rules and here's how to do it successfully and and not every first year student can do it but if you work really hard you can learn the rules and look there are these conferences and they're publishing things like that that seems to say that it's worth doing right so that that's a game you've been taught to play and you've been conditioned to value to think is important okay so but suppose operational semantics is not an end to itself it's a means to an end which of course it is, right? Okay, then it can't be the goal. So what are we really trying to accomplish? Okay. Now, what to me, what we're trying to accomplish is, is what, what I've said a few times, which, which is we, we have some problems definable outside of technology, right? We have some puzzles that have nothing to do with technology, like something in linear algebra. And I want to use this machine, this kind of, you know, part real, part fictitious notion of a digital computer to help me solve that problem. Okay, well, first of all, you gotta be clear on what that means. All right, so you gotta talk about, right? Okay, so one way to uh, kind of tackle that is to say, let's make up a language and let's give it a type system and let's give it a, 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 a small or large step operational semantics. And then let's go about and, and do the standard mantra of uh, 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 ritual of these you know, strong normalization, type preservation, stuff like that, right? But none of that has anything to do with the problem I'm trying to solve. The problem I'm trying to solve is I know, I know what the mathematical thing is. How can I get my computer, my machine, whatever my technology is, right, to implement something that is analogous to it? That has nothing to do with small step operational semantics, 
type preservation, any so, of that. Wait, what, what, what is exactly the mathematical thing that I want to do? That's not clear to me. Oh, okay. So if, if you're doing machine learning, right? You're, then but, you're going to want to do some linear this, algebra. This higher pro pur purpose languages is not, doesn't, I don't have a different language for machine learning and a different language for, you know, what, what we do here. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm, then I, then I want to, I want to bring up another, I think, really important point. Okay. Um, I, I don't know how not to bring it up uh, at this point. Ask your question again. Sorry. It jumped out of my head when I, while I was. Right. Right. So the, the question here is like, Okay, in, in operational semantics, I'm coming up with a language, the, the higher purpose language that I can do pretty much anything, and I want to yeah. show that it's not going to crash randomly, right? There's some property yeah, yeah. there. Okay, all right, yeah. Of the Thank language you. itself, Thanks. right, yeah. yeah. All right, so, so here's the point. We don't need languages. We don't, let me say that differently. We don't need new languages. Okay, so, so there, there, there's something, that this is like, it's a different point. It's tied up with operational semantics but it's only loosely tied up, okay? So, so um, I've been a computer professional for a very long time now. I have designed a few languages when I was young, okay? I haven't in a very long time, what I would call programming language. Sometimes I use the word language, okay? Like, like uh, you know, in these conversations, but I usually mean the language of semi-rings. Zero, one, plus time. That's, that's the language I'm talking about. Okay, or monoids, right? or vector spaces, or something. Okay, that's usually the language I mean. And I, so I, I mean, I'm talking about algebra, not about programming. Okay, okay. So if you want to solve a problem, do you want to create a new language for it? Okay, that habit is in vogue. Okay, people do that, and 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 particular. So operational semantics people do it. Denotational semantics people do it. Classical ones do it. I don't. Okay. So, so there, there, there's a um, there's this really important thing that I had that I hadn't said, and I could see that I, I think it created some confusion, and and Dan's response I think mirrored, yeah, uh, yeah. mirrored something I, that I, I I didn't come around and say, which is really important, which, which is that I don't design languages, and and I do use denotation, so what the heck, right? Isn't denotational semantics about giving meanings to languages? Okay, that is the original use, and that's not what I do. What I do is I design programming interfaces and implementations, okay? Now, a language is a programming interface, right? And hopefully it has an implementation, all right? But most programming interfaces are not languages. They live in languages. They're used with languages, okay? So long time ago, in the 60s, Peter Landon wrote a seminal paper that had an enormous influence. I suspect most programmers don't know Peter Landon, but they have been influenced by him incredibly. Peter Landon wrote a seminal paper called The Next 700 Programming Languages. I think it was published in 1966, I think. Okay. So you've probably heard of this paper. This is the paper that introduces the idea of what we now call domain-specific embedded languages. Um, and, and, and he starts out by saying that saying this, a programming language, ha, uh, programming language has, has two parts. Okay. It has, it has a part that is about describing things and a part that is about gluing things together to make new things. Okay. It's very simple. You look at a programming language, you'll see that there's really two languages in there. One is a language, it's a vocabulary, what I call a lexicon. Okay. It's, it's a thing. It's like numbers and addition, right? And strings and stuff. Okay. That's one, that's one part of the language. The other part of the language is, you might call it the glue language, or I was going to say meta language, but it's only a meta language through Peter Landon's perspective. So I, I tell, never mind. Okay. So the, the rest of it is about like 
um, procedures and variables. And uh, for imperative languages, about sequencing. For functional languages, about composition. All right. Uh, type systems. Right. That's a language kind of a thing. So Peter Landon in this paper, he he said um, we're headed in a terrible direction. Every year, there's more and more new languages. Right. The the the, the computation is exploding. We're 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 like. You know, we're going to have more than five computers in the world, it looks like. Right? You know, <laughs> computation is being very successful. Right. And, and so people are, you know, applying it to more and more domains. And so they're making more and more languages because we've been tying languages to domains. Okay. And this paper is saying that is a terrible mistake. Okay. A very costly mistake. And, and what he says we should do instead, what he recommends is that we pick one host language and we embed all vocabularies in it. In other words, you first have to recognize that programming languages of the time have these two components. One is you might call a host language, which is domain independent, and then you have the domain specific vocabulary. And that's what this paper is about, saying make that distinction and then stop reinventing the host language. Keep reinventing the domain specific vocabularies. Okay. So nowadays we call these programming languages and APIs or libraries, that distinction. Okay. So this approach has a ton of pragmatic benefits, and I believe I personally believe in it very strongly. It's almost always a, a mistake and a very tangibly harmful mistake to design a programming language. Okay, now operational. So the story that you were talking about is I'm going to divide. I'm going to design this language, right? And I got to say it's got this type system and it's got this small step operational semantics and all this stuff. And what I'm saying is that's a mistake from the get go. Okay, occasionally. Very occasionally, there's a, there's a reason to invent a new language. The uh, the discovery of dependent typing, hell yeah, that was a good reason to invent a new language. The discovery of types, period, was a good reason to do a new language. Uh, discovery of computation, you know, that's mechanizable, you know, that's a good reason. They're very, every so often, there's a good reason to invent a new language. Almost never. So the factor of how often we should invent a new vocabulary versus a new language is enormous. I don't even know. Nowadays, a million? Billion? <laughs> probably billions too much, probably a million too small. I'm not sure. Right. But yeah, so, yeah. so my job and, and I think almost everybody who listens to this podcast, unless you're an academic in current PLT, but that I think has lost its way. Uh, uh, you're going to be designing APIs. That's what I do. Okay. So when I design an API, I don't give it a type system. I don't give it a semantics at the level of like, how does if work? Right. What does function application mean? Is it lazy? I mean, is it strict? Is it non-strict? Call by value need. Is, uh, is it uh, sequential or functional? If, if I want one of those, I'm going to pick one. I'm not going to invent one and embed it in, into that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then all you have to do is to show that the translation preserves the operations of your host language. And this is a notation design notion, right? You're... Well, you know, so like... So what I do is I, I don't design a language. I, it's, I, and, and I may be guilty of misleading people by not being like really clear about this. <laughs> when I'm talking about denotational, I don't mean design of languages. I mean design of libraries. And moreover, I think there are very strong reasons that we've known it for decades of why you should do, why you should invent libraries and not languages. Okay. And what I see over and over is, is somebody has some feature they want. Okay. Let's say automatic differentiation. Let's say differentiation. All right, some 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 feature, and it's a little hard to like. Eh, 
little hard to imagine how you could stick it into, a, how you could add it to an existing language. Sometimes it's not hard. People just, they just don't, are not educated to try hard enough or they, they don't have, or, or they, or they don't, they don't understand the, the spectrum of possibilities or what you actually can do with a good host language. Maybe they're using C or C sharp or JavaScript or some imperative, something or other, uh, Rust or something. Those languages are really bad at hosting other vocabularies. Functional languages are really good at it. Non-strict functional languages are particularly good at it. Dependently typed errors are also, you know, even more so good at it. You know, there are technical reasons for all of it. That's not just an opinion. There are, there are strengths. Okay. So, so if somebody, if somebody says, I have this new feature, I'm going to design a language to show it off and write how many currently published programming language theory papers are, are of that form. An awful lot. I have this feature. Here's my language. Here's an extended Lambda calculus. Here's, a, here's some kappa calculus. Here's some pi calculus, something or other, right? But it's extended, okay? And so now I have to give a semantics to the whole darn language, almost none of which has to do with my feature, okay? And I have to make a whole bunch of decisions, and every one of those could be disastrous, okay? And so the, lots of decisions should make, lots of disastrous wrong choices to make, and almost none of them are relevant to the point I want to make. But it does fill up 20 pages, Right, and, and, and it will get you published in this era. I hope not much longer, but it does right now, okay? So, so the more fundamental point is don't design languages, okay? So it's really two things. Design libraries, not languages. Design them uh, denotationally, not operationally. Operational semantics usually has them bound up. De what's classically called denotational semantics also has it bound up, giving, giving the style of semantics and in the context of designing a language. And what I'm saying is, first of all, separate those two and then decide you want operational or denotational for the library, not the language. Yeah, and, and, and so that's what I do. I design libraries and their denotation. So linear algebra, that's a library. Now there are some cases where there's, it's kind of tricky. Um, it's, it's a little trickier to separate them and one of them is automatic differentiation because automatic differentiation is non-computable. So in a literal sense, if you make it a library and not a language, you're kind of hosed from the get-go. In other words, if, if in your programming language you make a function, then it's not possible to hand that off with just the semantics of a function and have it be correctly differentiated. That's a theoretical result, okay? So crap, what do you do? Well, an obvious thing to do is you design a language. There's a really horrible thing to do that I've watched throughout my whole career uh, that I still see people redoing. Uh, TensorFlow is an example of this, which is you do the worst possible choice, which is you design a language an ad hoc language with no surface syntax, and you program its construction from another language. That's what TensorFlow is. And I don't mean that TensorFlow is just a current example. Though TensorFlow is this huge API. It's all about graph building. What are graphs? Poor man's language, right? And then they have to give semantics to everything, much of which was really ad hoc, and there really is no good semantics. Whereas, and then if you look at it, what are they trying to accomplish? One thing out of that thousand, I don't really know what it is, out of a very large, uh, huge API, one thing that's new, which is differentiation, okay? So, so, I should, so what I build, it's, um, its footprint, the thing that you as a user experience should be one thing, and it should be called derivative. Now that takes some cleverness. Uh, compiling to categories is, is a way to do that. That, that motivated my compiling to categories. That's part of what motivated my compiling categories work. Another is you want to like, do hardware generation or even just code generation, right? Like I want, I, I want to generate code that runs on this funky mesh processor 
right? And I want to use my existing language. It's a good language, right? It's just an implementation question. It's not a language question. Language is about expressiveness. APIs are about expressiveness. This is an implementation. So I shouldn't, it should, the, the funkiness shouldn't be visible in my API, right? That, that's an abstraction leak. That's an impl implementation showing up, all right? Okay, so I've got to figure out how to take this language with its semantics intact and get this implementation. And that's tricky, but that's what compiling to categories uh, accomplishes. That's what it's for, yeah. And, and that discipline in compiling the categories and in homomorphic uh, denotational design, a really important thing about that discipline is that it takes away almost all of your choices. It takes away almost all of your freedom. And what it leaves you with is, is the, the important part. So it takes away all these things that if you're designing a language, you would have to make a decision about that is easy to get wrong and really not the essence of what you're trying to do. It takes all of those away and it leaves you with the very essence of what you want to say. And an implementation puzzle, but it's a well-defined implementation puzzle that has an elegant meaning, simple in terms of mathematics, we've already learned for some other reason, a precise um, uh, way of expressing the theorem. Therefore, it's it's friendly and, and valuable to the user. And there is a, once you get into doing these homework of proofs, you know, they're, they're not all that hard. Some are tricky, okay. But even when they're hard, you're doing the essential hard work not the inessential hard work, not like all this boilerplate stuff. Like, oh my God, the last three papers did, or, you know, I just learned in class. Yeah. So. Well, we already are talking about all of this for two hours and a half, and we would like yeah. to keep it on, on three hours today. How about we yes. give a, a strong shift towards the questions now? I think, you know, I could, I would, I would love to do that. And I meant to do it at first, but, um, but I want to do that. But I, I think I'd, I just like to make a list just to put it out there. So people get an idea of the breadth of what denotational design, I'm not going to go into any more examples. So I think this will take like three minutes. Does that work for you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. For okay. sure. All right. So linear algebra we talked about. Um, another example is polynomials. So sometimes people want to manipulate polynomials, right? Or power series, infinite polynomials. Okay, so, so that, that is a thing. There's a representation, but there's a denotation. We know exactly what they mean. They mean functions. Polynomials and power series both mean functions. They're not linear, so we can't use, the represent, we can't use matrices to represent them. There's something else. But we can do it. And, and then operations you do on polynomials, addition, multiplication, composition, uh, inversion, differentiation, integration, all that kind of stuff. Every one of those has, has, has the same style, the homomorphic style of specification, which is like the meaning of the product of the polynomials is the product of the meaning of the polynomials. That's always what it is. Power series the same. Um, uh, automatic differentiation. Uh, it's usually talked about in terms of graphs or sometimes a lambda calculus. Um, and neither of those is what it means. It means functions. So that so automatic differentiation is you can you can ex, uh, specify it extremely simply by just saying we're talking about functions and functions that are differentiable. That's what it means, and that's very well defined. And we know things that are true, like the chain rule. Um, and they are about functions. They're not about uh, graphs, and they're not about uh, the lambda calculus. Okay, and and so the way I did automatic differentiation was exactly with denotational design. I set up the the simplest possible specification in terms of homomorphisms. What's what's the meaning of 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 automatic differentiation? The meaning is differentiation, for goodness' sake. If you if you if you have some representation of a function, then it doesn't say it's code. What does it mean to differentiate? It means that if you if you take the meaning of the function and you take the calculus derivative of it, it you get the same result as, as if you take the the implementation notion of differentiation and then you take the meaning of that. So it's exactly the same style. Uh, language recognition uh, and, and parsing. 
Uh, a language has a very simple denotational model. It has nothing to do with regular expressions or push down automata. It has nothing to do with parsers. Um, languages are sets of strings. Uh, that, that story will give you uh, a notion. You can talk about recognition. You can talk about what it means to be correctly recognized in language. Um, but also languages have explanations for when strings are in them, uh, which you can formalize easily as proofs <clears throat> in a nice setting like the pentatypes. Um, and then the uh, implementation is a parser. So the idea of proof-relevant recognition is, is an explanation of parsing. Okay, what about SMT solvers, satisfiability? Well, the meaning of, so what does SMT do? It takes, it takes a representation of a formula. What, is that, what does the formula mean? It means a function from uh, some something to Boolean. It means a predicate. Okay, so the job of SMT is to correctly satisfy that predicate. So whereas usually it's talked about in terms of doing some kind of weird graph traversal. Um, state machines, uh, you know, if you're doing hardware design or something else, you talk about state machines. State machines mean something. They're not the thing that matters. They're a meaning. And they mean often functions from streams to streams. Those functions are often of a limited kind. That's not linear. It's what's called causal uh, quite often. But that's a semantic thing. Uh, and then compilation is a nice example, too. So what does it mean to correctly compile a language? All right. So you can talk about operational, this whole complicated story, but this is much simpler, which is what does the language mean? Okay. So I have a source. So compilation is a mapping from a source language to an object language. The object language is the machine, right? Okay. So, so you give both of those denotations. So there, so there is a function from source to a denotation. There's a fun for meanings. There's a function from the low level thing to meanings, the same world of meanings. They have to be the same world or you can't talk about correctness. So then what it means to correctly compile a language is to say that the compiler, which maps my program from source to object, right? So that, so if you compile mapping from source to object, that has to be, uh, that, that's one path. Another path is you, let's see, you take up. Ah, so if you translate from the source to the object, and then you take the meaning of the object, so that's two legs of a triangle. First is you take one direct path, which is you go from the, the source language to its meaning, right? That's why they have to have the same meaning. Then that triangle commutes. In other words, if you go directly from the language to its meaning, or if you go indirectly through this implementation, you get exactly the same results. That's what it means to be a correct comp compiler. Is that, yeah. is that related to full abstraction? That was a question. Full abstraction. That yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so let's go. Let's go to the questions now. We can start with full abstraction. Right. So there was there was John John Sterling. He made a tweet saying that he he was very impressed and he really liked the convincing apolo, apolo, I don't even know how to say this word ap apologia for the notational semantics. And Simon Thompson replied, "What are the thoughts on full abstraction in this?" In the setting, because he he points that all the nice concrete models don't give this for a sequential computation, parallel, or etc. And from my perspective, all the nice concrete models don't give this for a sequential computation, parallel, or etc. And from my perspective, that's when the notational semantics begins to lose its shine. Maybe he's also uh, a little he was a little confused as well between the we're not really talking about the notational semantics here, right? Well, I don't. I mean, I. I, I don't. I don't think that's a, that's a central point here. I I, re, I really appreciate his comment, um, and and it, uh, my response to it is very much like <clears throat> you know you asking about strong normalization and type preservation, all this kind of stuff, which which is it's the wrong question. It it it, it it's a question that uh, um, <clears throat> I've known Simon for a long time, and I, I Simon Thompson, I respect him, um, uh, but it, it's a question that comes out of this cultural conditioning of operational semantics, right? So it, it's it, there there's something that is. 
I think his question embodies that it's kind of assumed or believed to be a failure of, of denotational semantics. Okay, which is it? it you know, the, the, there's there's certain languages implementation. They they have a denotation semantics, they have operational semantics, and full abstraction fails. Okay, full abstraction means <clears throat> means that denotational equivalence and and obser- observable operational equivalence, which which means like operational equivalence in every syntactic context, that those two coincide. That's as if and only if. If you look at denotationally, you look at it operationally, you get exactly the same notion of equivalence. So that that's called full abstraction. <clears throat> and that's often considered to be a desirable thing and, and a big deal if you fail, okay? And also, uh, most, uh, most of our languages that we have now fail at, a lot of, a lot of them fail at it, okay? So like, like you, can give a, you can give a simple denotational semantics to say Haskell. When I say Haskell, I, I don't mean I, I mean like genuinely functional. You can, you can give a denotational semantics to it, quite simply. And then you can give some operational semantics, right? And then you can ask this question about a full abstraction. I think you find that it fails, okay? But there are two really important things about this. One is that, is that this failure is, uh, is an accident, is a historical accident. It, 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 and it, the, Simon used the word sequential, right, in his tweet, okay? So that's really an important word. It's, it's subtle. What, why, do you, why do you bring up sequentiality? Why does sequential have to do with anything? Okay, it's a it's a technical term that does not mean what the way we normally use the word sequential. It doesn't mean like the sequentiality of, of von Neumann programming, like you know, like a, a stateful C program. It doesn't mean that kind of sequentiality. <clears throat> it really has to do with um, what kinds of implementation models seemed uh, achievable in the twentieth century, which has been over for a while now, by the way. 2022, right? <clears throat> okay, so if you're a hardware person, this is a silly question because hardware has no difficulty with, with, with this kind of full abstraction business, okay? If you're a software person and your language was designed in the 20th century or your language is designed by people who were trained in the 20th century, you're going to run into this problem, okay? <clears throat> so an example is um, uh, like in Haskell, for instance, and this is a classic, uh, you, can define, you can define and, and takes two booleans and gives you a boolean, and you want it to be computable, right? This is like I want to, I want to compute and, okay, <clears throat> okay. Now Haskell has bottoms, has not, which operationally is, is thought of as non-termination, which denotationally means lack of information. Operationally means non-termination, okay, lack of lack of information. That's why it's called bottom. It's the bottom of the information ordering. It's, there's nothing, you know, okay. So. Um, uh, it, if you if you look at carefully at the definition of and, or if you've been bitten by this by this issue before, you, you you'll you'll learn to find it quickly, which is that and is defined asymmetrically. In a very subtle way, and that subtlety is in the sequential, in the sense Simon used the word semantics of Haskell. Okay, so and looks like this. Um, uh, and of uh, it's like and of false, uh, and and of false and why. So if you have and, and your first argument is false, and the second argument is y. For any y at all, your answer is false. Okay? And of true and y is y. Okay? So that, that's a definition. Okay? So that definition is subtly asymmetric in Haskell. It's not in Agda, but it is in Haskell. And, and what I mean is, if, if the second argument is bottom, you want to think operationally, you think the second, uh, second one doesn't terminate. Okay. All right. Then and of, so and of, tr- and of false and bottom in Haskell is false. 
and, and if you switch the arguments, and of bottom and false, by that definition, is bottom. So and is not symmetric. And is not commutative, right? So, so what's going on? And or, same issue. It looks a little different, same issue. So anyway, this, 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 this question was identified quite a long time ago. And, and, there's this, uh, and there's a famous result, I think it's Gordon Plotkin's result, which has to do with, with uh, uh, this something called PCF, uh, partial computable functions. It was this uh, kind of call by value, I think lambda calculus sort of a thing uh, that we were using to explore early proof theory. Uh, this came out of Edinburgh LCF and the brilliant work that um, uh, was done uh, to, to make that into a language and so on. Um, uh, what is it? The, um, the, What's missing that would that that would make Haskell fully abstract is something called parallel or. Okay, that's that's the classical story. It's not really the thing. There are a bunch of different things you can add to fill this gap. Now, why? So, what is parallel or? It's the or, and you can tell the story for and instead. But it, it, it let me tell it for and. It's the and that says this: if either argument is false, you should be false. Yeah. So, okay. Now, how do we implement it? Oh my God! Right? If I just said if either is false and the other could be bottom, which one do I evaluate first? That's the problem. The problem is the implementer is thinking, which do I evaluate first? And there's no winning answer because if you guess wrong, you're not going to terminate. If you guess right, you will. And you cannot find the answer to that question without taking the chance of guessing wrong. Okay. So if you believe that parallel computation is too expensive a thing to contemplate, then you will design your languages to prevent people from asking for it. Right. And that's what happened even to Haskell. Uh, which was invented in the previous century, by the way, right? Right. Okay. Now, to a hardware person, you look at this, this is just a non-issue. <laughs> yeah. This, is, this, <laughs> this issue is all about language designers being afraid of parallelism. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very easy to fix. So that, that's one response. Is this is not a fundamental problem. It's very easily fixed. Okay. Now, I have a second response, which is a completely different issue, which is it's not important, even if, this were, even if it were true. It's not important. Because the very pretext of the question assumes that operational semantics is the kind of defining thing that denotational semantics has to live up to, right? This is right. So how did this happen? This is like like men in our current culture get to define the discourse, right? And women have to kind of follow around. <laughs> Rich people get to define the discourse, and poor people, right. you know, and so on, right? So so whatever the popular paradigm is, they're going to try and define the discourse. You got to be aware of that kind of thing, right? And and ask, is this really a legitimate? way of form, framing the discourse. Why should operational semantics get to say, it, it's like two people disagree, but say you and I are having a disagreement. I go around telling the story. You know what's wrong with Pedro? He disagrees with me. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. And maybe I'm even have some, like I've, I'm older than you and I publish a few more papers than you, something <laughs> like that. So people are like, oh, I guess Connell must be the shit and Pedro's wrong. Right. But no, you could be right. And I could be wrong. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, so we gotta be clear about what is the, really the goal. And the goal is not to, for denotational to match operational any more than it's for operational to match denotational. My personal bias says, you know, I wish, uh, to operational, I wish you'd be more denotational-like or something like that. But that's just my bias. It's not the truth. Right? The truth is we're trying to accomplish something, and it has nothing to do with full abstraction. Yeah. So those are two entirely different sort of responses. One, one is that it's not fundamentally true, and it's completely archaic, the notion of, of being committed to sequentiality in the implementation. Uh, the, the very opposite is true. Sequentiality is what's expensive. Parallelism is what's dirt cheap. Sequentiality is an incredibly expensive thing. Almost all of the power, almost all of the electricity consumption, almost all of the 
computational muscle uh, that we're executing today is uh, wasted because of sequentiality. So sequentiality is not the thing we should be chasing after. It's a thing that we should be, you know, thanking progress that we uh, that we can just chew to, choose to be free of. And if you look at hardware, you see it's like everything is parallel. Like it's, you don't even bother trying to line things up. What a waste that would be. So anyway, that's my response to that full abstraction question. Yeah. What else? We got? Here's here's one one question for from Jacob. Thank you very much for sending this question. And he's he's thinking great interview. There was so much to unpack. Here are some comments. A consistent theme in this episode is the distinction between declarative knowledge and imperative knowledge. And he's always asking, what, what is knowledge exactly? But that's a little beyond the point. And he also points to a book that is brought, bring that all the time, which is the structure and interpretation of computer programs. And he gives the sections. And he, he points that you emphasize declarative knowledge almost to the exclusion of imperative knowledge. And he sympathizes with this viewpoint as historically, it has mostly been the other way around in computer science, imperative knowledge coming before the declarative knowledge. However, it seems to him that we can't take imperative knowledge out of the picture completely. For without it, we can't make computer do anything. And then the whole endeavor reduces to a thought experiment. In classical pure mathematics, one is not concerned with implementation. And so one can do all things of non-constructive, such as proving the existence of an object by showing that the assumption of its non-existence leads to a contradiction. To me, it seems that if we take imperative knowledge out of the picture completely, then we end up in the same situation as in classic pure mathematics. What do you think about this point? More concretely, while we formulate nice declarative programs in a high-level language such as Agda, that language must meet the machine at some point for the exercise to have a, any great interest. Otherwise, we might as well just go to pure mathematics. I think, I think a little bit of this question goes back to the point that it was a lot more clearer in this episode, in the sense of how we're tying this gap, right, of the implementation or yeah. and the, the denotation of what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think so. I, th I think I've already addressed it by clarifying that, that to me, certainly, and, and, and what I'm recommending is, yeah, you care very much about the implementation. You care so much about it that, that you address a realistic 21st century implementation. And how do you do that? That's what proof and specification are about. Yeah. So I, I, some people do get that impression for me. And so it must be something I'm doing that I don't care about implementation, but exactly the opposite is true. And if you care about implementation, if you don't care about its correctness, then it's easy. You just erase it all and call it right. If you do care about correctness, then you need a specification. If you care about that, that your claim that it's correct is the truth, then you need proof. If, if, if you want that proof to be achievable, then you have to have some elegance in there. If you want the theorem, that is the, what the proof is claiming to be use, useful, then it has to be elegant. It has to be simple. Yeah. And, and, and so, so that, that's why the, the denotation needs to be incredibly simple and take all of this machine accommodation out of it. And then you put it in in spades and do a really good job, not some half-assed thing that tries to be both specification and implementation, but a really good one. And then you... Then you uh, yeah, you do, you do the proof, yeah, and 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 I th I think the more efficient you want, the more that proof becomes necessary. Right, right. Because yeah. then you can hand wave all those details. He also gives yeah. a a really good a really a really interesting quote from the great algebraist Irving Kaplansky. So he says that we 
Paul Halmos and I share a philosophy about linear algebra. We think base is free, we write uh. base is free. But when the chips are down, we close the office door and compute with matrices like furry. I think it, this, yeah. this comes down really yeah. to the same point that you were mentioning, right? That mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you're doing this implementation, but your reasoning is in this higher level. In their case, this base is free, which I thought yeah. really... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's a different strategy, but I think they're talking about the same thing, which is that we want to have what I would, you know, we might call it denotational versus operational, or they might call it a, I don't know, higher level, more abstract versus more concrete or something like that. And they use them for different purposes. One is more computation friendly and one is more reasoning friendly. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. And, and those guys are mathematicians, so they would appreciate the proof connection between the two, right? They, they like, they know if you ask them, okay, you're competing with matrices. What does that do with linear transformations? Boom. It's at the top of their head. They know that. Right. Yeah. He also, so J Jacob also asked a, a very interesting question about what do you do in the case of errors and exceptions? I think you touched this yes. a little bit with, with Haskell, but could you elaborate a little more? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think this, this is, um, <clears throat> I think this is, this is more sub substantive question. In other words, I'm, I'm not going to like wave away this question and say, you know, this is a poor question or this is a product of, of, of your, of your conditioning. I think it is somewhat, um, so I think that it, what with error, so errors are, are a really important issue, right? Er, errors are like a formative issue in how we think about design of languages and libraries. Right? So, um, uh, and there's a broad spectrum of what, how, what people want to do with their errors. So there are people who love dynamic typing and they want their errors to just like come to life spontaneously at runtime. <laughs> Right, right, right. Hopefully, in front of them and not their customer, but you know, whatever. You know, the, <laughs> you know well, we'll take our chances here. Okay, so so that's one way to deal with errors is is you don't try to prevent them in your language or your library. Okay, and graphics programming, good heavens, is full of this kind of stuff. Like almost every graphics right. program, program, like OpenGL, uh, either crashes or draws, uh, or you get a black screen. That's like, like, like almost everything you could possibly do is that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and, and, and graphic programming has tons of state in it. I mean, these low level graphics program, tons of state and the state has to be set up in just the right way. And there's no way a type system is, is gonna, is gonna catch you when you do it wrong. So, <clears throat> uh, okay. So what do we do? Well, what we have done is we've moved toward higher level languages and more expressive type systems. Okay. And higher level languages and more expressive type systems, uh, they reduce, um, it's not that they don't prevent you from making mistakes. They catch those mistakes earlier. That's what a parser, right? A parser, like it's going to reject a lot of your programs. Now there are languages that really push the boundary. It's like, you can pretty much type anything you want. We'll come up with an interpretation. And some people think that's a good thing. I prefer my programming, my compiler or type checker, my parser to reject, you know, as much as it can. Yeah. So, so as far as errors, I, I think our first line of defense is, is prevention. Okay. And we do that by, by having higher level language and richer type systems. The richer type systems, maybe that's a little obvious how it prevents it because like most things you write, oh, that's a type error. Just like most, like the parser, oops, that's a parser error. Yeah. As far as high level, the reason for that is that high level, and then I'll, I'll say what I mean by high level. High level language is one with a simple denotational model. Okay. So it, it, it's expressive. You, you can talk about, you know, doing rich things or expressing rich things, computing rich things, but the, but the, but the uh, mathematical world, the semantic domain in which you phrase those explanations are simple 
Okay. Now, machine-ish things, low-level things, including the imperative programming model itself, and also the, the model of processors that we use now, which is not true, it's a fiction. And then and then below that, you know, the, the like microcoding and so on that's that's actually going on, you know, and then below that, the analog, you know, physics that's going on. Those are all much more complicated. Okay. So so the, the job is, is those guys have to work in a more complicated world, and so their their reasoning is going to be more complicated. What we want is we want the subset of things that are the subset of capabilities of the machine, small subset of behaviors of a machine that are the denotations of high-level programs, of simple things. The machine can do all kinds of stuff. But we are really interested in the very small set of behaviors that reflect correct execution of, 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 simp of a sim simple notion of programming. When I say simple, I don't mean weak. I mean very powerful. But but you know based on an elegance in the words like uh, powerful expressiveness yeah. Um, I don't remember if I'm answering the question. I think I lost track. No, you did. I think I think the the the, the question was answered, and in a sense as well, he's asking you know like how to handle these errors and exceptions. And in my point of view, maybe 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 I'm I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm, I'm mistaken. But an error is just something that you could not capture in your in your semantic domain yet so it means that you didn't you didn't capture that idea that makes it an exception right because you didn't you don't have a good enough theory of what's going on right yeah yeah well i would say maybe more specifically it's a failure of your type system now maybe maybe that that's not a nice way to put it maybe maybe i should say it's something that i i that i hope a type system lets me prevent yeah so for example uh, a canonical example of this issue is like in C, you always you, you always need to catch the exception when your pointer is new, right? But yeah. what it means is actually that your pointer, your 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 type system should know when it's new already, yes. in that you don't have to, to dynamically check that ever. Yeah, exactly. Just what yeah. Plus is trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, and and you can fix that with you know even something simple like, like Pascal, you know, from a long, long time ago, <laughs> right. or C sharp or something like that, right? Just got to fix like you don't have null pointers, get rid of that. That was yeah. Tony Horst's billion dollar mistake. Yeah, right? <laughs> but but there, but you can go further. You can do like divide by zero. That's another example. People have what about divide by zero? That's a number that has the right type. Well, in Agda, divide by zero is a type error. And and like how on earth could that work? Well. The, the division, and you can do this for every, in every situation. So, so I'm going to use the word partial. So a partial function, that's a function that for, for which the, 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 the type says it can handle all this, but the truth is it can't. It can only handle a subset of it. So in, in other words, like it's a function and, you're, and you give the type of its input, but it only really works for some of its input. That's where, that's where errors come from. Okay. So, so you can take any partial function and make it into a total function with a standard simple recipe and division by division is an example of this. So if you have a divided by B, there's actually a third argument, which is the proof that B is not zero. Mm -hmm. So you're actually restricting the domain here. Exactly. I take two, I take an A and a B and a proof that B isn't zero. Now in order to populate all three of those arguments, B had not, B cannot possibly be zero. So it would be a type error. Now there is an onus on the programmer. You have to come up with, uh, well, somebody has to come up with a proof of non-zero. Okay, and that that could be hard in in Agda. There's actually some idioms that, that that in a lot of cases makes that completely easy. In most cases, and where it's not easy, fine, you just fill in the proof yourself. It's not it's not a problem. And you 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 get there's just like a little aesthetic thing of like ah, this ternary not binary. I can't use infix. That's a drag. Right? I like to use infix. I like to use infix. It's prettier. All right. Well, so when you have to fill in that third argument, 
actually even that you can use in fiction, say A over B, A over B in parens, and then apply it to the third argument. And, and, and add to that third argument is what's called an implicit argument, which is a lot like type, type class instances in Haskell. And they can often be inferred automatically. And that one can under some circumstances. So there, there are tricks like that. And that's a general recipe that eliminates all partiality. Because a partial function is a function for which you got the domain wrong. How do you get the domain right? Well, sometimes you need a more expressive type system. That's, and that's what dependent types gives you. And, and it's not like, oh, you got lucky. No, dependent types, we know, are equivalent to reasoning. They're equivalent to the foundations of mathematics. And they're equivalent to the human function we call reason. In other words, logic. Yeah. So if it's wrong, then there's a proof that it's wrong. If it's, if it's right, there's a proof that it's right. Okay. And, and, and you can, and if that proof is in a self-consistent logical framework, you can encode it in dependent types. No, it's, it's not just like a lucky win on this one. This is a general solution. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It takes retraining. It takes retraining because people are used to just like, I'll just divide and hope for the best. <laughs> Another question that we got was from Nicholas. Thank you for sending this question, yeah. Nicholas. Um, it's not much of a of, of a yeah. question. He explained the <laughs> devil advocate here for for ecosystem. Let me read this. The entry barrier for Haskell and Agda is really high. I'm passionate about this stuff, but it still took me multiple attempts to develop even decent Haskell skills. People who are not already convinced of the value of Haskell are often intimidated by them, oh. quickly dismissed. I believe if a language is easy to learn, then it has a greater chance of developing a rich ecosystem. And I think yeah. from the industry perspective, this is really the greatest asset in a programming language can have, which is yeah. Yeah. a rich ecosystem is even more important than all those metrics that are usually used to rate a programming language, like performance, code, readability, error-proneness, error and so on. Of course, this is all correlated, but easy to learn can be an initial spark that turns into a, a good feedback loop, which is it's easier to learn, more people know how to, it works, bigger community, more libraries, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and yeah totally. I think he has, a, he has a, a great point as well, and in, in a sense, also, It, it, com it comes back to the, to the issue of familiarity versus elegance in a sense, because we, once you learn Haskell, you, you have to agree in a sense it's, it's, it's very elegant, right? Like it's, it's very simple and, and, and concise, and you can talk about it's closer to what we have of, of functions in, in mathematics, let's put it that way. So there is this familiarity. However, it's, there, there is this non-familiarity which is how we usually program, which is imperative, yes. right? So we, we're trying yep. to bridge this gap, this gap. So there is these two forces at contention again here, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, so I, I agree with him that if you pick a, a familiar paradigm and maybe you make a tiny tweak on it. So let's just say you take Python and you throw in like some new thing, right? Um, If, if you take C, C sharp, something like that, you throw in a little thing, or you think like Rust, you throw in like, you know, some, it, it's way of thinking about memory management. Objective C has another funny way of thinking about memory management. Okay. All right. So the fact that you're telling people, all I'm asking you to learn is this tweak from what you know. Okay. I think that is much easier for to, to bring people in uh, and you'll bring a lot more people in. Okay. But will you get anywhere of value? Mm, yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to share something. I, I, I love this quote. This <clears throat> it's about Galileo and this is from Frank Wilczek, who's a, a Nobel laureate 
wrote this lovely uh, little book called The Lightness of Being, Mass, Ether, and the Unification of Forces. Okay, So he, he says this, and, and, and I want you to think about, uh, about these programmers right, who, who were, want to stay within their frameworks. So he says, in Galileo's time, professors of philosophy and theology, the subjects were inseparable, produced grand discourses on the reality, uh, on the nature of reality. Okay, professors of philosophy and theology produced grand discourses on the nature of reality, the structure of the universe and the way the world works, all based on sophisticated metaphysical arguments. Okay, meanwhile, Galileo measured how fast balls rolled down inclined planes. How mundane. But the learned discourses, while grand, were vague. Galileo's investigations were clear and precise. The old metaphysics never progressed, while Galileo's work, uh, work bore abundant and at length spectacular fruit. Galileo too cared about the big questions, but he realized that getting genuine answers requires patience and humility before the facts. Okay. So what does this have to do with what we were just talking about? Pop, you know, making small tweaks, which, which is if Galileo, right, had come up with another small tweak to the theology of his day, it would have been much more accessible. He would have had a bigger user base. He would have had people, you know, submitting pull requests on his GitHub repos and all this stuff. He would have built, he, he would have taken advantage of the popularity of muddled thinking and of, of, of archaic pre-scientific mindset. Yeah. And he chose something else and he chose an unpopular path. Right. I mean, Galileo was really, really a groundbreaker. I mean, we, um, uh, that was like the difference before, you know, science and after science, you know, there was, we had, we had uh, Kepler shortly, you know, roughly contemporary a little after we had Newton, you know, a few decades later, uh, we had Bacon a little before, but Bacon was, was really clear, but he didn't do science. He, he thought more clear than anyone else about science, right? And then way back to the Greeks who had no good ideas, but they had no idea how to, they didn't have the scientific method. They didn't have experimentation. They didn't have fossil, fossil viability, okay? So, so who made more of an impact, right? The Galileo who did what he did or the Galileo who, you know, added some small tweak to the existing paradigm? You know, so I think if you're going for popularity, you're going to find it by choosing not to do significant, uh, to make significant progress in science. Um, you know, almost by definition, you're going to do it by reinforcing the existing paradigm. We've been seeing fundamental weaknesses in the existing paradigm of what computation is and how to describe it and how to talk about it being correct. We've been seeing that for many decades. We're heavily financially invested in this old paradigm, but we're already at a crisis. One of the you know, one of the important aspects of that crisis is, is the, um, the, what deceleration of Moore's law. So, you know, we had this free lunch, just like the guys at Intel are going to keep cranking out faster chips and we're going to keep writing sequential programs. And, and, uh, but, but that curve is, has slowed dramatically, right? I mean, you're old enough, I think, to think about like how, oh my God, computers are like this year's computer so much faster than last year's computer. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. Right. So, so now we have, we have sequential computation, which is the popular paradigm, right? That's running on parallel machines that are wasting most of their energy trying to pretend to be 1950 von Neumann sequential computer, right? When we could be doing so much more and every so often we get a glimpse, video games, right? Created a market 
that 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 welcomed uh, graphics processors in. That was like the first time in a long time that there was a commercial motivation for doing a, a very different uh, a very different computer architecture. And and since then, the CPU has been the slow processor in in, in our machines. Like if you care about speed, you you should not run on a CPU. Um, and it is getting more and more true. The the paths are diverging of efficiency, right? Yeah. So so to choose to uh, contribute to the existing paradigm, yes, you'll get more short term popularity and kudos and, and external you know reinforcement. You'll get probably more raises because if you're working for a company and they're not trying to break new ground, yeah. But you're contributing your life energy, which is non-renewable, right? It's a precious resource. It's the precious resource we have to a dead end. It's something we've known as a dead end for decades. Yeah. And so maybe it's worth it to go on your own and find a few other resonant souls who say, I want to do something that matters. I think that is a very, very good note to finish the episode on. That is highly, deeply insightful. But before that, there is an invitation that we would like to do to yes. whoever is listening, and particularly Dan, if he's interested, which mm -hmm. is to keep this con this conversation going, to let's keep discussing about operational semantics and notational semantics and notational design mm -hmm. and the value behind that. Connell, you have training in, um, yes. how would you describe it? Um, what's the method there? You, <laughs> yeah. We were talking yeah, about holding we... this discussion, where is is a much more um, fruitful discussion of sorts, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so um, another nod to Dan. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I was touched and delighted and, and appreciative uh, so much of what Dan said and, and, uh, and, and the question you asked Pedro and so on back and forth. And one thing I really loved what Dan said is, is he doesn't like debates. He, he, he like appreciated the uh, conversation by proxy, which uh, I like that term too. Yeah. And, and so often people are like trying to one up each other's score points and stuff like that. Like I have no, no interest at all in, in competitive conversations. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and these questions around operational denotation, they're very important to me. Um, and those aren't even the heart of the important questions. Truth is the important question. How can we, and how can we build our civilization on top of solid foundations instead of what we've been doing, which means we're, we're building on top of computation. We want it to be efficient. We want it to be correct. And the method, the, what people know how to do now, apparently don't, don't, aren't getting us there, right? Okay. So I think, you know, a lot of people care about these things. I care about that more than I care about being right about this denotational stuff or homomorphic this or that or something like that. And I think Dan does too. So, so I, I was inspired. I, I really felt a resonance with, with like, I don't want to do a debate because in a, in a debate, the point is winning, right? That, that, that's the goal. It's winning, which another way to say that is, is to go in to, is to leave the conversation without having learned anything. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. right. So, because when we're right is that's when we don't learn something. Right? Being right is like you only learn something by by not already knowing it and being open to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You call it being wrong or 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 being uh, uh, being consciously ignorant. It's a wonderful state. Yeah. So anyway, I was inspired to think, ah, it would be lovely to have this to have a conversation with Dan or maybe with somebody else, particularly with somebody who has different biases from mine. But the goal has to be really clear. The goal is we're 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 dedicated to getting to the truth, not to winning. Now, how do you do that? Anybody could say I'm dedicated to get to the truth, but they would, when, they, when they get in there, they're really trying to win. Okay, so I have received training. I, I worked. Uh, I, I 
I was trained in a, a work called Nonviolent Communication. It's a terrible name. It's not very explanatory at all. It's a wonderful work by Marshall Rosenberg, who was a student of Carl Rogers. Uh, Carl Rogers, incredibly famous, influential, uh, important human being. Um, and and I, so I, I learned from him about how to have, um, you might call it negotiation or mediation or something, in, in a win-win sort of way. And one of the important techniques that supports this goal of really getting to the truth is, is that each person, uh, success looks like this. Each of us is able to reflect the other's point of view to the other person's satisfaction. It's very simple, and if I may say, elegant. <laughs> so every time right? someone says something, you have to repeat it back to me, and I have to say, "Okay, I like, I like what I hear." You, you got the essence yes, exactly. of what, what I'm saying. Exactly, mm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, you know, that that can be like really annoying, depending on how you do it. You know, if I repeat your <laughs> words back to you, right? That's, then, then that's like that's right. not actually very helpful. I could have just written yeah. it down and read it. A robot could do that. Right. Instead, I paraphrase your words, mm -hmm. and and more than that, I take them deeply into my own being. So what I'm talking about is an intimate, vulnerable process. Okay, I listen to what you're saying. I take it into my own being, and I meet myself there in what you're saying. And that's and that and that that's what each of us does. Now, how do we know whether we've gotten there? Well, probably we haven't. And that's fine because it's an iterative process. So I listen to what you say. I take it inside, see what I can really connect with. I try to ignore your prejudices and mine. Try to ignore your opinions and mine. I, I try to connect with, oh, this is what matters to him. Oh, look, that matters to me too. And then I speak from there. And I don't say, you know, that reminds me of me, blah, 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 blah. That, that's not going to work. I say, I kind of think this is think this is what you're getting at. I think this is the gist of what you're getting at. And if I get it right, you will have like a heart opening, warming reaction in your body. I mean, when, the, the, when this when this thing works, you feel it in your in your innermost self. Yeah. And and then the person who's facilitating watches, and if they don't see that happening, they they kind of help every so often. It's like you know, let's back up and did, was that part? You know. And so I'll reflect back to you, but really from myself. It's not a robotic. Some people do it that way. It's terrible. It's, I hate listening to it. Everybody hates listening to it. So now, yeah, yeah. And then, and then you will say, yeah, that part is kind of right. And there's this other part. And maybe that other part is something I missed, or it's actually something you didn't say. And my getting to the heart, right, and connecting right. heart to heart with you right. helps you get to the heart of it also. And mm -hmm. you share that. Mm -hmm. So we go back and forth in this process. And it's actually quite beautiful and moving. And it It, it changes the whole dynamic from two people on opposite sides of the table or an issue to two people on the same side wondering, oh, now that we both see what we're both in touch with, that we both share, that we both care about, I was focused here, you were focused there. Thanks for helping widen my focus on what I care about. And you thank me for helping widen your focus on what you care about. Now we say, ah, this is a bigger puzzle than I was paying attention to before. Which is probably the case. Exactly. Yeah. So that that that's the invitation. Now it doesn't have to be as touchy feely and uh, <laughs> personal vulnerable as I'm talking about. I like it when it is. And so my beloved and I, we facilitate. We do like couples coaching and we coached uh, relationship workshops and that kind of thing. And that's absolutely what it's you know it's, it's a deeply intimate process. But I think it, it it's you know it can be done with the level of honesty and whatever level of vulnerability people are willing mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. uh, in a scientific conversation. And you know at the bottom of our opinions are what we care about, right? And our opinions are this kind of superficial level. So if you kind of get past that, we, we you know, what we care about, we care about the same thing. And that's what our I heard. Our values and beliefs. 
are in the core. Yeah. Well, I would say our values, not our beliefs. Not your beliefs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Our yeah. Our beliefs, I would say, are strategies for how to fulfill think, our values. I think I think I'm 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 having uh I'm thinking of a particular Portuguese that I'm trying to, to uh, translate that doesn't quite yes. translate into beliefs, but yes. I get your point. Yeah, the English word <laughs> belief is a, is a slippery right. thing. It comes from right. the word leaf, which means to wish. Ah, so right. yeah. So so people use and Alan Watts talk about this in our culture, people will, will talk about belief and faith as if it's the same thing, but he says they're actually yeah. opposites. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, belief, the the word I'm thinking yeah. is closer to faith, yeah. 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 And, and but but people in our modern culture use faith the opposite of what he means. They they use it to mean belief. Yeah. So Alan Watts says so. So belief is a clinging. Belief says I'm willing to open myself to the information from the universe as long as it agrees with my preconceptions. Ah. Faith okay. says I'm unconditionally willing to open myself to the reality of the universe. Wow. And I'm willing to have my foundations, my beliefs, be changed. Wow. That's a whole That's different powerful. thing. And then he goes on to say, therefore, faith is the essential virtue of science oh. when practiced with honesty. Wow. Right? Which is the wow. opposite of what people believe now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not always practiced with honesty, but that's its essence is faith. It's what he called faith, not what people nowadays call faith. Wow. I think well that this is an even anyway. better poll to, to finish our, <laughs> okay. our conversation then. Can can you say that again? Okay. All right. So this, this is what he says. There's a little more context. The discovery of this reality is hindered rather than helped by belief, whether one believes in God or one believes in atheism. But we must make a clear distinction here between belief and faith, because in general practice, belief has come to mean a state of mind, which is almost the opposite of faith. Belief, as I use the word here, is the insistence that the truth is what one would leaf or wish it to be. It's the insistence that one, the truth is what one would leaf or wish it to be. The believer will open his mind to the truth on the condition that it fits in with his preconceived ideas and wishes. Faith, on the other hand, is an unreserved opening of the mind to the truth, whatever it may turn out to be. Faith has no preconceptions. It is a plunge into the unknown. Belief clings, but faith lets go. In this sense of the word, faith is the essential virtue of science and likewise of any religion that is not self-deception. So this is Alan Watts in his book called uh, The Wisdom of Insecurity. Well, so that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for your audience. Make sure to follow our Twitter at the D4All. If you have any questions or comments, send it to our website, www.typetheoryforall.com. Or you can also send it through our email, typetheoryforall at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. We have another 20 episodes before this one. Make sure to check those as well. So that's it. 
I hope to see you guys next time.